Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson. I'm the editor of Squiggly Magazine. I'm joined as ever by Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello, I'm Ben Mitchell, features writer, podcast producer, all-around lovable curmudgeon. So schedules have proved very tricky of late, and uh, as such, we have a very interview-centric podcast for you guys this time around. Rest assured, we'll be back to our ponderous babbling come podcast number five. But in the meantime, we have some fabulous guests this episode. Today we've got an interview with Ant Blades from Bird Box Studios. We'll be taking a look at his work. We're also featuring the stop-motion nightmare weaver Robert Morgan, Director of some fabulous work, including this year's BAFTA nominee, Bobby Yeah. We've got an interview with the one and only Weeble, John T. Picking from WeebleStuff.com, celebrating 10 years online. And as a super special last minute guest, Mr. John Christofalusi, Canadian animation legend, who'll be talking about his latest project. So put on your headphones, pretend to be hard at work, and we'll get started. So you recently moseyed on down to London Town and, and visited Ant Blades at Bird Box. I trust that went well? Yeah, very well. He's a very nice man. Went down to see him in his studio in London. For those that don't know an awful lot about Ant Blades, hopefully this interview will uh, clear the mystery up a little bit. What kind of stuff has he worked on that we might know of? Well, predominantly he started off as a comic artist. He got a, a lucky break by creating the Bewley comic strips, which got taken in by a national newspaper and ran for around about eight years mm-hmm. uh, before the lure of animation became too much for him and he decided to set up Bird Box Studios, responsible for uh, films such as uh, Sketch. He called them ske- the Sketchy series, so the Sketchy Guard, mm-hmm. Sketchy I'll Get the Ice Creams, Chop Chop, all, all these films with a very sort of uh, a scribbly style. Ah, so it's an aesthetic sketchiness, not a, a subject matter sketchiness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, okay. yeah. A very um, controlled scribbliness, which is uh, pleasing to watch. As a man who likes pre-production and things like that, I do find... And a good scribble. A good scribble, oh, yeah, everyone likes a good scribble, don't yeah. they? That's the, the joy of animation, isn't it? Indeed, And, Indeed. and there's, a, there's, a, there's a real vibrance to his work because of the, the looseness of the line. So, without any further ado, here's Ant Blades. Thanks for talking to Squiggly today, Ant Blades of uh, Bird Box Studios. Did you always want to become a comic artist or animator when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, I think I did. It's one of those things that I've always, always been doing. Um, I've always been kind of drawing cartoons, and uh, I think I remember like you know storyboarding animation. Um, from an early age, even though I didn't know how to make it, I knew what was going to happen with it. So I've got a lot of kind of old stories that you know, are ridiculous now because I did them when I was twelve. But uh, and yeah, without any plans to make it, but just I just enjoyed doing it and coming up with the ideas. Uh, do you have any particular um, heroes uh, of comics and animation or, or comedy? You, you works very um, it's got very strong comedy angle uh, any of these guys uh, that may have influenced you when growing up and getting into comics I think getting into comics I was kind of um, it's probably a few of the favourites like you know Bill Watson and um, Calvin and Hobbes and Garfield you know I had all those books and I kind of loved all that stuff and uh, I think I tried to mimic a lot of that comedy in, in my early strip cartoon strip uh, I think cartoons was initially what I was trying to get into, um, but then more and more realizing that you know at some point I wanted to take it as a career, and uh, an animation seemed to be you know a better career choice than than cartooning. Uh, I still kind of keep on thinking people like Tom Gould and stuff. I think do amazing work and really nice simple styles, and that's the kind of style now that I kind of quite 
I like that style. Yeah. I find that very approachable, yeah. very easy to see, and like the humour there, it's very subtle humour that I quite like. Smashing. So, um, the 2001 when Bewley started, a, a, a competition in the Express, was it? Yeah, so that started, uh, yeah, competition in the Express, and I was actually at Bristol studying civil engineering at the time. So it was the final year of, of the course, and then I kind of won that, and I realised that there was having you know, a year's contract with that, I thought, oh, there's probably a future here. I might as well give you know, my passion a go instead of what I thought was a very kind of safe job. And uh, so once I left, I just kind of continued doing that, and that's what spurred me on to start, you know, starting animation, going to animation college for a six-month intensive course, and, and just seeing how it could go with that. I think beauty ran for seven, eight years uh, before I kind of threw myself fully into kind of making my own films. Oh wow, so where did you study for your animation? Where? Uh, Central St Martins. St Martins? Oh yeah. wow, six yeah. months. So it was, the, it was when it was a six month intensive course, I think now it's longer. Yeah. I think it's a year or two now, I'm not sure. Yeah, so you say intensive course, not much sleep? Plenty of yeah, yeah, just like a new film each week had to be made. Wow. Uh, but it's good, I think it crammed everything in and you didn't have... It seemed like you learned everything you needed to know in that six months. Yeah. Uh, instead of kind of dragging it out and it meant you could get out there straight away afterwards and start trying to get involved. Cool. Do you, uh, do you miss Bewley? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I kind of miss coming up, I don't miss trying to come up with the ideas. Uh, but I miss kind of having, having come up with an idea, I miss having kind of finishing off a strip and kind of proudly sending it out. I do miss that. Um, but I'm kind of trying to fill that void with trying to come up with little animation ideas instead. Mm. But I miss, oh yeah, I do miss the characters and I think I'll probably try and bring them back, animate them somehow. Yeah. Oh, excellent. I mean, do you think that the appeal of, of the comics can be translated into animation? So that like Bewley animation, do you think that would that would work separately, differently to the comics? or? I think you can, a comic you can have a very s small, I mean obviously you don't have that much space to tell the story, but some of the gags that might work in a comic, in a, in, you know, if you animate it, it will be gone in a second and then you, know, you need to kind of cram in more. Hmm. So if you were translating that kind of short short comic, then uh, it's going to be quite a lot of. You're going to use a lot of the ideas up in a very short animation. Um, but I think they do translate, and I kind of I've tried to come up with the animation. The shorts I try and make uh, are for that reason very short, and just trying to be like a very kind of an animated snapshot, an animated comic in that way that you'd see like a weekly cartoon. You know, maybe you'd just see like a weekly animation instead with a very small gag. So the, the family in uh, I'll Get the Ice Creams could be the Bewley family. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly that kind of thing. So instead of you just opening the paper and reading the comic, yeah, you just, you log on and you, you kind of go onto YouTube and you see the little animated movie. Brilliant. Um, so where did you work before you set up uh, Bird Box Studios? Uh, what sort of work did you do? When I started it, I started cutting and animating. I was doing freelance animation for various studios and um, Tandem and Prism, Prism Entertainment for a while, doing a, a little series with a penguin. Uh, but then after a while, I don't know, I think I got slightly disheartened with uh, animation and I'm not sure what it was, but anyway, I kind of moved away from, from doing kind of all the hard graft on, on other people's animation and I kind of moved towards uh, online design and uh, ended up basically working at Google for five, six years as part of the YouTube creative team. And while I kind of enjoy being part of that environment, 
after a while, uh, especially being part of YouTube, I became very aware that there's something seemed missing was was these little short, funny animations that are a big hit on the uh, on YouTube. And th seeing things like Simon's Cat made me realise that you know that this is something I'd, I'd love to do again. So um, yes, yeah, so set up Burbot Studio and started trying to produce these films, getting them out to to small kind of um, screenings and. Uh, and then, yeah, the big jobs came on and it really spurred me on to kind of create something bigger and, and keep going. Yeah, YouTube's done incredibly well for you, hasn't it? You've uh, yeah. a few million hits on it's, there. It's a great kind of advertising kind of platform. Yeah. And it's a good reason to keep making these shorts, even if they're just for, for the studio. It's a good way of people seeing your stuff and knowing what you can make. Of your films, do you have a particular favourite that you're proud of, like all the shorts and the uh, commercial work and things? Weirdly, the very first one I did, which was Guard, that was, I think, in terms of the idea, it felt like a very strong idea, and I think I liked that the most. Um, so that, and then the sketchy ice cream is one that, that's what brought on the sketchy style, was that I was less about trying to make something look beautiful. I was more about trying to make people laugh. I was trying to make, trying to get a, a lot of these out, mm. and just trying to get the idea across. So it wasn't about showing off, you know, amazing animation or showing off amazing visuals. It was just trying to get someone to laugh. So that's what I was kind of aiming for, and that's what I think what brought about the style as well. Oh, although your work is sort of sketchy and stylized, and a sort of it's very controlled sketchiness. Do you sort of uh, do you still do it in rough, and then do like a clean rough on top? If that makes sense, is that how you work? Yeah. So I, I kind of it's the, it's the very initial once the idea is kind of formed, it's that initial stage, like first day, say where it's most important to, while it's still fresh, and before the idea's got kind of tired, that um, I try and sketch as much of it out as possible. And for a lot of them, I haven't had to, you know, I've, all I've had to do is just kind of go through and start cleaning it up slowly. So there is a rougher version underneath, um, but I haven't had to do too much over the top just to clean it up. And I think there's quite a big jump from, from where it's like an intentional stylized piece, where it's intentionally sketchy. As soon as you start cleaning up a bit, it feels like it leads a lot more. So I think there's like it seems to me that there's a, a bottom level where it works as a sketchy style, and then as soon as you start polishing it up, it needs to be a big jump before it still works. If you know what I mean? Right. Okay. Is it more sort of more of a vibrance, more of a? Uh... I think it just kind of looks. Yeah, I'm not, I try and keep it sketchy so it looks like you know it looks like that's the intention it's supposed to be. It's mm. just the idea. It's supposed to. It's just supposed to be a sketchy idea or something. Um, I think it's just that it's soon, yeah, as soon as you start adding more colours and stuff then it looks like it's an unfinished piece as opposed to an piece that's intentionally like that mm. Excellent uh, If we talk a little bit about your commercial work the Three Olives um, commercials uh, like three cowboys walk into a bar three sugar daddies walk into a yeah. bar etc I'm sure people will have seen them uh, they fit in quite well with your other short films and they look pretty similar style um, with, they've got a right balance of humour and animation uh, that your short films do have were you given uh, free reign on the content did people approach you because of the style or um, or was it vice versa it was kind of a mixture so I think they uh, I was approached on the back of the style and the and the humour hmm. of my uh, of my shorts and then but then coming out with ideas they already had one uh, one idea that was kind of pretty much firm. In fact, most of them, they'd already come up with some ideas and they were hoping that we'd just kind of work around that and come up with our own ideas that would fit in with their views. 
um, but it was kind of frustrating because a lot of the gags that you know I thought would work really well, the the audience for them was a slightly uh, edgier audience than I think I'd normally be heading for. So it was this kind of vodka market, and they wanted people to be things like sugar daddies and stuff. They wanted it to have a bit more edge to it. So it was kind of frustrating because some of the ideas that I thought were great and worked really well were kind of rejected. And then some of the ideas that they put forward I wasn't particularly comfortable with was having to do as much as I could with them to try and make them work in the way that I thought would work. So I think some of them worked well. I think some of the gags and some of them worked. I think some of them didn't work quite as well. Now, as these things always are, it's hard to kind of please everyone. Mm. So it's just trying to get the best fit that, you know, has the vodka bottle in it, but also has the gag in it. So it was kind of a... A mixture of kind of input from everyone, really. I think the uh, for me the cowboy, cowboys the is the cowboys winner for me. Is, yeah, 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 that's the strongest. I think that yeah. Yeah, was that the yeah. first one? Last one? So or? cowboys was the first one. Yeah. Uh, and that one, yeah, that one works well. And uh, even though it does have have two people getting shot in the head yeah. again, so I'm not sure how well that went down. I think a lot of kind of uh, networks might have been slightly uncomfortable with that. But yeah, no, that was my favourite as well. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, it was, it was this classic. Uh, scenario where you know we had a set amount of time to make them but the ideas we you know we only had a couple, like a week to come up with all the ideas which seemed you know a ridiculous kind of way of managing the time so you know even though we were going to spend months making them we were only kind of giving ourselves a week to come up with all the ideas so it was uh, in that way uh, hard <laughs> hmm. So is there a different approach to your commercial work than there is to your personal work? Does your personal work go on the side? Is there a sort of f- a fine balance? Or a- yeah, so I tend to have quite a few uh, of the personal works on the side. So I probably have about 10 kind of going, you know, I come up with an idea and then I quickly sort of sketch it out. And uh, so I do all my work in Flash. So it's a very easy way to kind of animate a very quick story animatic of the idea. And then... Normally I've got other work on, so you know, I'll spend a morning trying to come up with the idea, showing it to people, checking that it kind of works, uh, and then I'll be back on something else. And in that way it's kind of nice because it means you can go back to it after a month, not having looked at it, and have another look at it and see whether it works or not. Um, so there's always, yeah, like I said, there's always quite a few ongoing, hmm. you know, half finished or without an end gag. or and. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, I think it works well that way because you know which ones are going to work and which ones aren't and there's no pressure if suddenly people want something then I know there's a few there kind of ready to go alright oh, cool yeah. well talking about your, your methods I was half expecting to see Cintiq uh, out here with you scribbling away on the pen and yeah. what, what do you use what programs and uh... so yeah all the stuff is it's all done in animated in Flash uh, and then After Effects is needed as well so kind of mixed with both and uh, or just on a Wacom tablet, which which is suiting me fine at the moment. Uh, I think I might be moving on to Cintiq once I start kind of. Another thing about the Wacom is it kind of it is hard to get exact lines, which again is fine for my style because it's all so loose. It doesn't really matter. It's just the idea of what's happening. Uh, but as soon as I start getting a bit tighter with the designs then uh, it makes it a bit harder because you can't quite control where the lines are going. So, um, speaking of, sort of personal short films, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Chop Chop? I mean, was it, was it easy to make? Took you a while, I presume? It would be hard to say how long it actually took me to make because I initially kind of came up with the idea and animated the very first kind of rough of it uh, about four years ago. And I like the idea at the very beginning 
but it hadn't quite nailed it. Like it wasn't quite right, and it didn't quite sit right. The whole the whole gag wasn't quite right. So it was one of those ones I kept coming back to, and kept filling with, and kept tweaking, and even things like the guy running around at the beginning over the rooftops. You know, that kind of thing came on quite later because I realised that you needed, you know, without that bit, you wondered why he hadn't noticed that her head had already chopped off. You needed to feel that he'd missed it because he was doing something else. And I tweaked and tweaked and tweaked it and I just ended up feeling like I was polishing it, just polishing something that wasn't wasn't worth it. And then um, and then once it was finished, was finished, I got kind of got fed up and I thought, right, this is done. I'm not going to do any more work on it, just finish it. And then sort of ended up looking back at some of the old stuff and pretty much the first version I did, if anything, worked better than the others. I just think I'd been so lost in trying to polish bits up and tweak animation that didn't need tweaking. And I think I was delaying and releasing it, if anything, because I wasn't sure about it. Right. Um, but since it's gone out there, it seems to be doing all right. So, well, you, um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's a very enjoyable film to watch. There's an awful lot of choreography in the films. I mean, how easy is it to choreograph something such as Chop Chop? Uh, which the audience need to be engaged within the fighting for them to ignore the fact that her head's already been chopped off, which works perfectly well in the film. But there's an awful lot of choreography and things such as um, I'll get the ice creams as well. Yeah. Um, sketchy guard. There's a little bit of that with the you looking at the flags and you can tell you can tell what what characters are doing underneath with just a yeah. simple pole. How do you go around creating things like that? Is there an awful lot of storyboarding? Or? It's all it's all done you know, as part of the animatic, as part of the animation. It's just yeah, I find that. Cool. It quite fun, uh, just going through and checking that these little moments. It just starts off fun, and then you know again and again trying to look at it with fresh eyes and and uh, you know taking off two frames or adding two frames or you know, moving that forward a bit later or you know thinking sketchy ice creams. He different places he fell in order for you know the, the dad to notice he'd fallen. And I mean there's loads of different variations. And it is kind of constant tweaking uh, and constantly trying to see it afresh and, and check that it's working. But yeah, the choreography bit I quite enjoy. I quite enjoy kind of trying to make it all work and trying to make your eyes kind of go to the right spot at the right time. So do you watch an awful lot of um, films for reference, like Kung Fu films or Three Musketeers or anything like that? For uh, you know, I think I probably trawled the web a bit, just kind of trawled YouTube a bit, just kind of going through some you know fight scenes and stuff, just to see what kind of moves people had. Uh, and yeah, it was it was a bit of a challenge to kind of realise that I had like six characters that I had to kind of approach them, you know, how they deal with them all. Kind of exciting, but without without you obviously work quite a distance. So uh, you know you need to be able to tell what's going on. And again, I think I think if it was a it's a it's a one shot, so it could be quite boring. You know, in, I think if it was a feature film or something, you'd have about fifty cuts in between all those scenes. So it was a bit of a challenge to kind of get all the people moving at the right time without distracting from what he was doing. You don't seem to put an awful lot of cuts in your films. I mean, apart from, I mean, Chop Chop, there's a, there's a title and then there's the action. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think that, they're not really needed. I mean, they're all so short anyway. I think it would distract from, and they're all, scenar they're all kind of set scenarios. They all have, even before anything's happened, you can see pretty much what it's about. And I think the duel from the first shot, you know, okay, this is a duel. Every, every single one of them is, is a set scenario and you, you can see what's going to happen pretty much. And you don't really need any more for the for the story I'm telling, and in the way I'm telling it, it's in quite a kind of it's almost like a voyeur. You're just watching something happen, as opposed to actually having cuts and, and trying to make a, a movie of it. It's just a way of kind of something's happening, and you happen to be watching it. 
Oh, Ant Blades, thank you very much. No problem. Ant Blades there of Bird Box Studios, chatting with our very own Steve. Something I really do admire about people who work in an industry or train for a particular industry and then just decide, actually, you know what, I'm just going to be an animator. <laughs> like, it's sort of hard enough to, to go into that from the get-go, but to segue into it from something else takes a lot of chutzpah, if you'll pardon my Yiddishness. Yeah, you've got to admire anyone who decides to take a punt and, and, and you know... You decide this industry I'm in, not really my thing, let's plunge ourselves into one that's far, far less reliable. Yeah. Yeah, well, more power to them. Exactly, yeah. You're going to work for the rest of your life, more or less, you know. Why not do something you enjoy? I mean, you won't enjoy when the bailiffs are knocking on your door or when uh, you've got no money for food, but you'll enjoy... You know, I kind of enjoy that constant feeling of everything's going to go completely tits up at any moment whatsoever. You know, it sort of keeps me on my on my guard. Yeah, animation yeah. animators are, are thrill seekers and daredevils. Little, little do they know. Yeah, there is something about living in a state of perpetual anxiety that I think is rather conducive to creativity. What I particularly like about Ant's animation and and the, and the work from Bird Box is the choreography. The acting and the choreography is something that's overlooked sometimes. And when it, mm. when you get it right, when you hit that nail on the head, it's something special. And that's what you get from Ant's films, really. That's the good thing about the work coming from Bird Box Studios. The timing as well. Yeah. I love the timing. And getting that right, when you see it, you start, you're just jealous of seeing how amazing it is. You know. And even when an animation is you know scribbly, as is his choice, as long as you have that fundamental sense of you know really, really well thought out acting and really well thought out performance, it just shines through. Because at the end of the day, it is about the art of movement and the art of performance. So, what's your favourite of his uh, his shorts? Well, my favourite. It's hard to say because I can remember just every time I see one for the first time, I'm always just as giddy and just as excited. I think the first one I ever saw was the first one that he did, which was Sketchy Guard. Mm -hmm. And that made me laugh. And I was like, well, more, more. I want to see more YouTube. Give me more. But Chop Chop's a very good one, the, the new one that he did in a sort of watercolory mm -hmm. style. But my favourite, mm, you asked me a very difficult question there, Ben. It's why I'm here. Yeah. It's my function. Yeah. You like Jeremy Paxman? I yes. think I think my favorite I think my favorite would probably be I'll get the ice creams or the olives commercial, the three olives uh, vodka commercial, the cowboys one. Mm. They're the ones that they're the ones that I tell people to look out for. You can check them all out at birdbox.com. You can check them all out on YouTube on his website. But yeah, sure. Now, someone who's particularly enamored of little stupid dogs. I'm a big fan of his recent one, Dinner about a little stupid dog. I think the, the best thing about the, the dog one is um, it, it gives the dog intelligence, but at the same time, it captures this sort of gangly puppy's exuberance, hmm. and it's perfectly realised. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like those Simon Cat ones, you know, that's certainly the earlier ones, when you observe animal behaviour, and then you have that translate into well-made animation. And that's something that uh, any form of animation, if you get that right, going back to what we were saying before, you know, it's 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 adds so much personality to the character. Like one of my favorites of um, elements of Up, that Pixar film that you might have heard of, is the way the animals behaved in that film. Now, this is obviously a very, very different type of production to these, you know, mini web shorts, but the same kind of fundamental thing remains. You know, they have that bird behavior and you have those dog behaviors be kind of crucial components of who those characters were. And I think that that is really what sells it. And I think, you know, even when you're working at the other end of the spectrum, you know, a sort of smaller web type comical short film, 
as long as you have that command of performance, it's going to be something pretty strong. Well, it's a bit like when we were talking to uh, Nancy Beeman in an earlier podcast. She thought, described uh, how to train your dragon. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, dragons are mythological. You know, no one's ever seen them before. And, Speak uh, for yourself. Well, <laughs> I don't smoke what you smoke. <laughs> but, uh, how they used like salamanders and cats and things, and mm. you recognise the movement and the motion in there. It's very important in animation to get that right because that, that's there's the believability. You've got mm. to believe that the character's in motion, and you've got to believe that it's real, that it's thinking, that it's functioning. That's how you get success in animation, I believe. Mm. I'm thinking maybe I should get a pet, but the problem is the only types of animals I like are the really sedentary ones, like you know rabbits and sloths. So I'm not sure how much my animation would benefit from that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, a sloth animation. That would be exactly my cup of tea. Next up, we have an interview with Robert Morgan, uh, another stop motion animator. Quite unique one. Uh, really, really, really very dark. One of the few directors who can really capture the essence of nightmares. Or if you're a troubled soul like me, basically, whatever I see whenever I close my eyes, it's all very visceral very uh, haunting, very unnecessarily unpleasant, and I absolutely adore it. Uh, it's, it's something that I think you, you can't have too much of in any medium. So it's good that, you know, animation, and particularly stop motion, you know, has its practitioners that will mine that territory. I think The Cat With Hands, one of his earlier films, uh, was probably the first time I was freaked out at an animation festival. <laughs> I was quite young. I went to the Bradford Animation Festival in 2002, I think it was, and I saw the cat with hands and it just wow Mm. this is what animation can do animated shorts they can terrify you yeah I mean everyone likes videos with you know cats in them they do so well on YouTube so it's just (laughs) it's a nice spin on that tradition it's the antidote to uh, to any to the Nyan cat yeah his most recent film is called Bobby Yeah. It's a BAFTA-nominated auteur film made entirely on his own time with his own resources, which I always have tremendous admiration for, uh, and especially with something like stop motion, which is so demanding, you know, and it's so it's so dependent on other factors that you know other digital animation processes don't cover as much. Very immersive, different from his other films in that it's also very funny, but just as creepy and nightmarish and horrific. Well, I've got the uh, description here, just so people know where we're, where we're coming from. Uh-huh. Bobby Yare is a petty thug who lightens his miserable existence by brawling and stealing stuff. One day he steals the favourite pet of some very dangerous individuals. He finds himself in deep trouble. He really should learn, but he just can't help it. Now, whatever visual you might have in your head having heard that description, there is no way to imagine exactly how that's... Um across on screen it really does have to be seen to be believed so if you can catch it i think it's still doing the festival rounds for a while yet before it's going to be online but uh definitely worth a look maybe not a great date film <laughs> but here's the man himself robert morgan i guess uh, uh to start with i'll focus on bobby yeah how long has it been since it was finished like completely wrapped um i finished the complete final 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 um uh completion of the film was in July 2011. And uh, how many years had it been for it to sort of come together? It took, I mean, I, I made the film in a sort of um, a kind of spontaneous sort of make it up as you go along kind of manner. So I was doing it in my spare time for about three years prior to that and then finished it you know, last year. But it wasn't three years of full time, it was kind of um, 
you know, I had basically had a spare room with with the the, the set and the cameras and lights sort of set up there permanently, and I could just go in there whenever I wanted to and sort of make a bit more. So there was no um, funding body to answer to or anything like that. So I just sort of, and there was no script either. So I mm. just took my time with it and you know, allowed it to, you know, to, to take as long as it took. It is great to hear that um, sort of in this era, I think, of, of auteur filmmakers uh, in the absence of funding uh, really sort of coming into their own. Um, and I think there are a lot of people like listening, independent directors who are sort of itching to make their own work, which is kind of at odds with how diminished, you know, these, these funding opportunities are. So was your process for getting the film off the ground, was it a self-funded thing or was there something in place to get material costs or... Uh, was it funded uh, from the other films? I, I, I mean, it was... Luckily, this sort of drop in funding, because um, it has been a complete drop, but that coincided with uh, the technology to make films getting much cheaper and, you know, a sort of DIY setup that you can have in your in your home it is now possible. And that's coincided with the money dropping out. So um, that was pretty good timing, really. You know, so I, I, had, I had sort of had a few years in the wilderness of not having not getting anything off the ground. I'd, been, I'd had funding prior to, to this uh, in, in when, when, you know, in the sort of golden days, really, of, of Channel 4's animation funding and things like that. Um, and I hadn't had any funding for ages, so I just thought, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of start making something because I was just bored of, you know, chasing money. And there was no funding at all. I just made it myself. And I, I had no scripts either. I, I, I was sort of sick of screenwriting. Uh-huh. So... I just decided to just sort of start doing something in my spare time that was a film that was just for me and, you know, it wasn't answerable to anybody with my own money. And that's mm. how I made it, really. I love the uh, the description of the story on the uh, on the Facebook page. Um, it's almost kind of like quaint way it sort of boils it down to, um, you know, he finds himself in deep trouble. He really should learn, <laughs> but he can't yeah. help it. That's kind of, I mean, it's an accurate summary, the way it's, it, it's sort of in the sense that you could describe Eraserhead as a film about a single dad trying to raise his kid, you know, and the hijinks yeah, that yeah. ensue. Yeah, it's a tricky one to sum up, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this film. So, yeah, in terms of plot, that's kind of what it's about, but that doesn't really describe... I couldn't really think of a way to describe it in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that sort of captures what I think it, it is. So I just came up with that. But it kind of is about that as well. Yeah, and it's a nice, it, it's a great sort of juxtaposition against people who have seen the film, uh, against what sort of it is in a visual sense. Um, yeah. It's quite funny, and it, uh, it works sort of quite well in that respect. And I think also when people, there I think is a, a division of people who go into any kind of abstract film where they kind of need to know something of a story to it, yeah, yeah. to enjoy it. Um, so it kind of accommodates them as well. Yeah, I mean, if you really, I don't think it's really going to deliver on a sort of cops and robbers, you know, level. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, if that's what people think it's going to be, but it, the narrative really just sort of evolved actually out of making it. So I was never consciously sitting out, sitting out to make, mm. tell that story. It just sort of came about. So the story is really secondary to the, just the sort of psychedelic mania yeah. of, of, of the film. So when you're crafting it, do the do the visual concepts come to you first, then, and you kind of craft it into something that has a sequence, has a progression? It depends on the film. I mean, this this film it was a stream of consciousness. Previously, I have written a script 
successful because there was a story I wanted to tell and then the visuals come second to the story but this time around there was no story I just sort of started filming and the first shot of the film is the first shot that I shot and the last shot of the film is the last shot that I shot and everything in between is, is was chronological hmm. so I was purely all I had at the start was just a, vis a visual sense I just had a puppet and a, and a set just started animating that just like I had this character run into a room and you know then watch it back and then sort of think well okay now what can happen and um, you know went from there so it was only visual hmm. visual style to begin with and then you start noticing it's kind of subconsciously you're telling a story did you have any kind of crew working on it or was it entirely your own thing it was basically me and I have a sound guy once I'd finished shooting and had my final cut I, I then take it to the film to, to um, the guy Mark Ashworth who does all of the sound for my films and, and then we did the sound but it was basically yeah I mean as far as the visual as far as the film itself it's basically me and I got a cup I got a little bit of just assistance here and there like my girlfriend is a, is a photographer so she shot helped me shoot some of the, there's a little exterior sequence in it mm -hmm. that she helped shoot and there's a cinematographer friend who helped with the shots of the kind of weird psychedelic sky which was ink in a, in a water tank at the end of the film and then the, the bit with the octopus burst out of him uh, I got my friend Dominic Hailstone who's, just, who's a director as well he's a sort of special effects genius uh, helped me uh, just sort of tart that up a little bit so there's bits and bobs along the way I just kind of got friends to help out in one particular bit if I needed help on but essentially it was just me in a room Hmm. It is a great thing when you, you if you sort of work at it for a while and you get your own sort of network of, of people who can help out for the sake of, of you know the sort of shared appreciation for the making of the film. Um, yeah, definitely. You and know, combine I've got, that. I've got I've got a lot of friends who are, who are filmmakers hmm. whose work I really like, and you know I, I, I like the idea of helping out friends on their films and them helping out me on my films. It's a, it's a it's a great and I think quite an essential attitude to sort of have and like you were saying especially now with just how much easier it is to make films on the whole you know the the software processes and and so yeah it's it's, it's great to to be more sort of proactive about it and, and get on with things you know yeah I mean I, I spent there was about a five year gap where I had not made a film and I, I just sort of woke up one night thinking oh my god I, I might never make a film again hmm. because. Uh, it's not in my control. I'm relying. I'm, I'm basically spending my life asking permission from other people, most of which have no idea about filmmaking, if they will let me make a film. And mm. it, it just struck me as a really absurd situation to be in. That other art forms don't have that problem. Like, if you're a painter, you don't have to go and ask someone permission. If, if you can, please, can I do this? I've got an idea for a painting. Please, can I do this painting? No, you can't. Oh, okay. Mm. Well, I'll try and come up with an idea for a better painting then. It's just absurd, you know, or, or, or a writer, you know, publishing is a different thing, but if you've got an idea for, for if the writer has an idea for, for a novel, they can just sit down and write it. So um, I just thought, well, this is kind of an absurd situation to be in, that I'm, I'm not allowed, I'm not being allowed to, you know, to do the thing that I love doing the most. So I just thought, no, that's not right, I'm just going to do it. And you don't have to have permission, you can just do it. Yeah. I mean, when I did Bobby Irvin, I just there's no point in going to a production company for a film like that because it's just you know it's, it's just me in a room. So yeah, a lot of sort of shared themes. I mean, throughout like the whole body of work, but I think I thought in particular with the uh, the first film, Photograph, 
things like the the claustrophobia, the sort of the the enclosed rooms, the holes in the walls, and stuff like that. And um, that was a student film, right? Yeah, yeah. Was that sort of the film that put you on the map in that sense? Or did that sort of do well instantly, or did, was that kind of a slow burn thing? No, it did, it did very well. Um, in my last year at college, I just sort of really got my head down and just, I, you know, I, I just knew that, I, I think this is a real advice to students generally, is like, spend your student years trying, you know, make a good film. Hmm. It's the most important thing. It's, it's the best currency you can have when you leave. Um, is to, to show that you've made a good film. And it did very well at festivals, you know, won some prizes. Um, it got me the funding to do the next film. And then that one got me the funding to do the next one, and then that one got me the funding to do the next one. So, um, and then by the time I made Bobby Yeah, which was totally self-funded on my own, I already had a body of work, so people already knew my work, so therefore there was an audience for it. Hmm. So, uh, and it all comes down to that student film, you know. Yeah. If, if, if I hadn't made that, if I hadn't worked hard at college, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't have made any other films, really. Yeah. Was that also a case of you sort of soldiering on pretty much on your own? Yeah, I mean, student films sort of generally are. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just me and my parents' garage, basically. It's quite cool yeah. to, to have that sort of bookended like that, you know, to have the most recent film and the, the first film kind of come from the same place and get a real sense of where you've gone, you know? Like, um, yeah, how I, things I have developed. Both of those films are actually the, the, the two, in a way, the sort of two purest um, films I've made. And actually, I was first thinking about this. Even that one, though, even the student film, I had someone to answer to, which was my, my, you know, my tutors and the, co- the college. So even then, I was doing it for a sort of higher authority. In a way, there was somebody above me watching what I was doing. Hmm. And with with Bobby, yeah, this was the first time that I, that I was not answering to anybody. Mm-hmm. So it was quite, it was very liberating actually to work like that. When you would have um, uh, funding for the films in between. And then uh, crews, presumably, to sort of get the the sculpting side of thing in motion. And were you less involved in like the craftsmanship of, of say the puppets and the sets at that point, or were you always quite hands on? I've always sculpted my puppets in uh-huh. every every film, so that's always me. Uh, because I think uh, I don't think anyone would be able to do it in the way that I like it. Right. I think people would probably be able to do it better, but it's not about better; it's about being right. And I think. For me, I have to kind of get my hands on and have it. There's sort of imperfections in it that, that it has to be a certain way. So I, I always um, sculpt the character myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, with the with the separation, for example, which is a film I did uh, for S4C in, in Wales, and we did a, had a really good budget for that. So we were able to really design, very heavily design um, the look of that film. Mm. with really, really talented, you know, production designer, um, Stéphane Collant, she's a really talented yeah, guy, um, and a really good cinematographer, uh, Philip Cowan. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, collaborating brings its own rewards. Uh, there's ideas, visual ideas in, in, in that film that I would never have thought of. But with the animation, it's particularly, it, it, for me, it's, if, if I sculpt the puppets, then I can sort of, I feel like I've made them I feel like they're my characters then, and I, then I, that's like my compass. Yeah. I don't think I could do, do those films if someone else could sculpted them. I uh, was looking at the DVD and uh, some of the test footage that was on it. And it's quite interesting to see, like, for something like Cat With Hands, um, that sort of footage that I guess would serve as like a pitch to get uh, uh, more funding. 
Um, yeah. Was the idea for that film like did that was that created specifically for that scheme or had it been kicking around for a while? Yeah, the 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 um, that was written specifically for that that scheme. There was a three minute slot, and the, the Channel Four uh, used to run this scheme called the um, the Animator in Residence scheme. Um, went through various um, shapes over the years. They used, they used to be able to do longer films, but for, for for its longest period, it was a three minute slot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was written especially for, for for that. And the process is that you make a little pilot a little one minute pilot uh, first uh, and you spend you spend sort of three months I think it is in um, uh, in it used to be in the museum with the moving image but when that closed down they they put the animators in a, the, the, a little booth um, in the IMAX cinema in Waterloo so basically the idea is you're kind of a living exhibit mm-hmm. um, making a little test for the film and uh, then you deliver this, this, this test to Channel Four, and then they, you know, they like it. They greenlight the film, and you get the proper budget to do to do it properly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, it was designed for that. It was designed for the three minute thing. Mm-hmm. Did Channel Four have any input into the final story, or do they kind of step aside once they give you the backing? No, they stepped. They would. They stepped aside. They just, you know, let That's go good. with it. That's very nice. Mm-hmm. Was that the first time you'd incorporated elements of live action? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's like, in my student film, there's like a live action sort of maggot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was the first time I'd had to work with actors. Had there been a part of you that had always wanted to do live action or at least try it out? Animation's a means to an end, you know. It's, it's right. a type of story that works really well with that. But, you know, I'm interested in other types of, you know, filmmaking as well. I want to do more because I want to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Something I, I'd always sort of, and again, I, audiences will have their own uh, uh, processes for films. I'd always kind of filed your work more under the sort of surreal cabinet, I guess, in my brain. And doing sort of research, it seems like a lot of uh, people sort of ascribe horror as the genre. I mean, do you consider the films you do to be horror films, or is that more like a projection, do you think, of the audience? Um, it depends on how, on how you categorize horror. Mm, good point. Because a lot of people have a very narrow definition of what horror is. They think of it as ghosts and zombies and you know guys with chainsaws and haunted houses and things like that. Mm. Um, so if your definition of horror is that, then I suppose no, not really. But if it's, uh, I, I personally have a sort of wider definition of what horror is. I sort of think it's more to do with a sort of a feeling, yeah, um, rather than a set of genre conventions. So, in, in some respects, I think they are horror films, but it, it, it all depends on how you define a horror film. Yeah. There's something very hard to articulate about the essence of like a nightmare or dreams in general. I think oftentimes it's less the events that you know occur than the atmosphere, and it's very rare that you see it replicated well in film or in art and I think people like Lynch can pull it off and in a very different way someone like Stanley Kubrick could um, I do get that sense from your films as it's kind of underlying dread claustrophobia again like mounting panic that sort of serves the progression of the film rather well is that intentional and do you think there are certain crucial ingredients to cultivate that atmosphere it's, it's kind of an instinctive thing I don't, it's, it's hard to sort of I don't think you can really intellectualize it and plan mm. like this is okay this is how this, this nightmare is going to progress I think you're right I think I mean I, I, that's, that's great that you 
said that they, they do achieve that that sort of nightmarish quality because that's definitely something I, I I sort of aspire to that sort of delirium I suppose I would, I would say I'd like I'd really like my films to achieve that level of a feverish kind of delirium yeah but because nightmares are sort of irrational you have to sort of use an irrational part of your brain to do it so in a way it's, that's why I think I tried to do Bobby Air in a sort of stream of consciousness kind of way because I I felt that that would you tap into that kind of part of the brain more than if you sit down and try and write a script. Very often when you try and write a script, it's the juggling plot. Uh, there's a certain amount of sense that has to sort of take place. So you're sort of juggling plot with this kind of nightmarish stuff. Um, so the nightmarish sequences or the, 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 the feeling that you get is very much to do with um, certain images, like you say, a certain escalation of images and a particular sound as well. Mm. Sort of escalation of sound and a weird use of sound will create a sort of ambience that's a bit, I suppose, sort of dreamlike or nightmarish. Yeah. Do you think that the medium of stop motion in and of itself kind of contributes as well? That sort of distinct quality of movement? Definitely, yeah. That, to me, that's the great untapped uh, dimension of stop motion animation, which very few people have really truly harnessed, is the, the inherent uncanniness of it. Um, Frank Meyer's done it and the Quay Brothers have done it too but I'm surprised that not more people do it actually not more people tap into that and I think a lot of people sort of missed, missed the point of it as well like they try and be spooky and they, they end up doing this kind of um, a cartoony kind of spookiness which is not really properly uncanny you know and uh, I think the very nature that you are bringing to life an inanimate object and that kind of weird sort of automaton-like way in which things move in stop-motion animation is just inherently uncanny. Mm. It just lends itself to, to, to sort of creepy or nightmarish filmmaking. And having those qualities to your films, do you feel that, that they perhaps limit the potential exposure a film could have or do they, is it like the opposite? Would it sort of widen it to, like, say, festivals or, or networks that would not necessarily be into animation but because it has this dark undercurrent to it they're into it in short films I, I haven't seen it as an obstacle I think people I mean all of the films have done you know really well actually at festivals and TV sales and things like that and they've won prizes and stuff like that so it's not so much not so much that there is a weird idea in, in the world that animation is, is, is um, a, a kids medium or it's, or it's supposed to be funny or something I would really like to do a feature film in the style of, in, in this kind of style, like an animated feature film. Among, I've got many other feature flex projects I'd like to do as well, live action and animation, but, you know, one of the projects I'd like to do at some point would be an animated, you know, a really scary, nightmarish sort of animated feature film in the style of, say, The Separation or something like that. Uh -huh. And, you know, I just think that there's, even at sort of pitch level, I've, I've just met resistance to it because people can't get their head around an animated feature that's not somehow for kids. Mm. There have been examples of it, but it's very, there's very few, there are ex exceptions. I'm just really amazed there's not a whole genre, you know, of, of adult animation. I don't know why there isn't really. Yeah, it's, it's, but, you know, not manga and things like that, but like... It seems to go hand in hand with very economical execution because I think that's the only way they sort of justify the expense of it is have it rely on, say, dialogue or um, the events of, of the story 
and then the animation is sort of the last consideration so you get these very rudimentary sort of on a par with I guess a, a, a manga animation but sort of created in the American market for you know adult programming um, yeah yeah and uh, it's it's a shame because adults are going to appreciate a good level of craftsmanship and animation way more than children do you know I mean yeah. we, we watch these awful 80s shows as, as kids and I would equate them with, say, a Disney movie, because we're engaging with a story at that age. When you're older, it's sort of the other way around. And you can do things that are more high concept, things that are more kind of, you know, engaging on a psychological level um, with an adult audience. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's just sort of a, a, <laughs> a shared gripe, I think. Yeah, I think, cause there, you know, there's no problem with that in, in, in the world of graphic novels. I mean, there, there was for a while, there were comic books were seen to be kids things, but now we're at a stage where you know, adults, it's, it's very readily consume, you know, complex adult graphic novels in yeah. comic book form. There's not an issue with that anymore. And, you know, maybe that will happen with animation one day. I hope it, hope it does. Mm. I guess something I picked up on with Bobby Yeah, and I think looking at the older films again, there's this kind of undercurrent of, of, of humour to the films. Not so much with, like, photograph or separation, which are quite straight and quite sort of bleak, I suppose, but, you know, the others, and especially Bobby. I mean, there were some really funny reveals and, and things with the editing. With Bobby, did you sort of intentionally set out to inject a bit more, like, I don't know, whimsy isn't the word, but... I suppose, yeah, I, mean, I didn't sort of deliberately say to myself, right, I'm going to make a comedy this time. Uh-huh. Um, but as I was making it, it just naturally... It's a weird thing, it just sort of... Film, sometimes a film just sort of seems to sort of be speaking back to you in a mm. weird sort of it might sound sort of pretentious but it's sort of once you get into the world of it it feels like it needs to go in a certain way and humour was just very naturally just emerging out of the situations that the character was in and you just go with it you know um, so yeah I'm, I'm, I was very aware that it was a much much more um comical or had much more humor in it than previous hmm. films it is an interesting thing to because i i don't work within stop motion really at all um but the people i know who do they all have that thing about like the process where it becomes like a, a sort of communication because it's so hands-on it's so tactile yeah the characters kind of it's i could probably only equate it to like you know writing music or playing an instrument where there's a kind of instinct and in knowing where to go um yeah. and it becomes second nature and my approach to animation is the more um planned out you know keyframes in between layouts make sure everything's very organized and locked in before i actually yeah, put yeah. in the, um so i find the whole like idea of the the chronological animation quite daunting I have quite a lot of admiration for that sort of whole process and to do a whole film like that is is is, is pretty spectacular and it's great to sort yeah, of I see mean, it. I, I, it's, it depends what your what your own sensibilities are best suited to like, I could never do what you do I just could never do it mm. it's totally that's daunting to me so it just depends on what your own strengths are I just there's a certain stream of I keep using this term stream of consciousness but there's a certain way of yeah, working with a puppet, you do just end up going where it leads you. It seems to be leading you, and you feel like maybe you know you you start off a shot thinking it's going to be a one, one way, and then it's sort of the, the puppet starts you know gently like leading you, like no, it needs to go this way, and you end up sort of going off that tangent, hmm. and you can't fight it. It's a weird thing. If you fight it, it looks crap. You have to just go with it. Yeah. 
Do you take sort of influence from other like stop motion animators or uh, film and art in general? Yeah, all the time. I mean, uh, I used to a lot more. I used to be really into you know the Spang- Spangmeyer and the Clay Brothers, and mm-hmm. Darovich and all those sort of stop motion. You know, the the whole alternative side of stop motion, which which was more about real texture and bringing real um, dirt and substances into the world of stop motion rather than it being this kind of clean uh, plasticine world or the sort of Tim Burton-y kind of very designed kind of world I've got nothing against that all of that stuff but mm. seeing Spankmire and the Quays and Starovich and um, sort of opened the door like oh you can do it there's a different way of doing good stuff so that was a really big a big deal for me at college when I discovered all that stuff um and yeah, I mean, yeah, paint a lot of, I mean, with, like with animation, again, there's different sort of types of influence that you get when it's supposed to do live action, which is a very different kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. But animation, I tend to, if I'm doing an animation film, I tend to be looking a lot at pe- paintings and sculptures and things and sort of getting influence from that and like, those sort of independent, um, like underground comics, and just, mm. just anything that sort of strikes a chord. Um, the sort of aesthetic that I'm going for. Yeah. But yeah, totally, yeah. Cool. So you have like the YouTube channel which kind of gathers together all that sort of come to this point and then uh, for Bobby, yeah, you've got the Facebook group. Uh, do you find that making use of those types of social media outlets are, are good for getting stuff out in the world, like especially if you're back to being independent again? Yeah, I think it, it, it gets, um, yeah, it's a great way of sharing. I mean, no, not only uh, is the technology there you sort of make the films but you can distribute it yourself as well now and um, okay it might not get seen you know unless you you know if you sort of figure out a way of really harnessing it and getting it seen by a lot of people um, that would be amazing it's a great way of, of of interacting with people who've watched the films and interacting to, you know directly with fans of the films or people who, who, who want to ask a question about it or yeah you get a real sense of, of, of how it's going down Hmm. what people are thinking of it and also it's, it's popularity you know yeah. people really respond to it and really like it so it's very satisfying hmm. you know like, like, like if you, in, in, in the days before this kind of sharing went on you wouldn't really have an idea about how films gone down you, but you just put it out there and then it's like you might get a letter sent to you or you might get like someone might come up to you afterwards at a screening or something but you don't really get a wide range of feedback as, as you do now Hmm. Cool. Well, really great to talk to you. Thanks, thanks for joining. That was Robert Morgan, director of Bobby Yeah, which is presently freaking out festival audiences and uh, winning awards the world over. The next upcoming festival appearance, I believe, will be its Australian debut at the Melbourne International Film Festival on the 10th of August. More info at miff.com.au. You can buy a DVD collection of his previous short films on his website. It's called Four Short Films. Uh, It comes signed with some extras and goodies. I recommend it. Give it a look at robertmorganfilms.com. Of course, Squiggly isn't just this podcast. It's a growing community, and at the center of which is our site, squiggly.co.uk. It's continually updated with news, reviews, interviews, and features, some which expand on the discussion from the podcast and others that are entirely standalone. So if you see yourself as something of a reader, check out what myself, Steve, and our talented pool of contributors have been up to. Recent highlights include interviews with Nick Dora of Angry Birds, 
Lewis Hudson, director of Man and a Cat, and uh, recent Oscar nominee Patrick Dion, director of the NFB short Dimanche. Also, if you have anything you'd like to contribute or you just have feedback in general, don't hesitate to drop us a line at podcast at squiggly.co.uk. Another web-based animator that you got to talk to recently was Weeble, uh, John T. Picken, um, of Weeble stuff. Now, how would you say his work compares to uh, Bird Box? I think you'd have to compare the humour. Uh-huh. Before you start looking at, obviously, the, the difference in design and things, you need to compare the humour, which is a very big cog in the machines of both their animations. Uh, the humour of Ant's work is very... It's knowing. It's very recognisable. If you re- mm. you recognise a trait or something in there, whereas Weeble's humour is very surreal, very... So, I mean, in, right. the, in the interview, he, he talks about uh, Spike Milligan and, and Monty Python, and that's a very sort of bold, silly, we call it, even call it stupid humour. Stupid for the, the sort of indulgent joy of stupidity. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. So where did uh, this Weeble fella come from? He's been around for a while, yeah? Yeah, well, this year's 10 years since the website started, uh-huh. which also means that it's probably 10 years since I was in college, wow. uh, which is quite depressing, because I yeah. remember sitting in Barnsley College, clicking on Weeble stuff and laughing at the um, early stuff that he did, and, and I've obviously have kept an eye on it since. So when I bumped into him in London, I was a little bit starstruck, really. (laughs) It was like, wow, you know, this man, you've wasted so much of my time. Can I now waste some of your time to have an interview, please? (laughs) It was was very, it was very nice. Um, He actually went to Barnsley College himself. Oh, my God. Ten years. Such is the nature of time. It just goes by faster and faster. You just know the next ten years are just going to go by quicker. Yeah. And the next after that, quicker still. Yeah. Before we know it, we'll be in the ground. And all the way I'll be clicking and looking at cartoons on the internet. Well, at least you're making a good use of your time. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, some of his work that people may be familiar with will be, obviously, Weeble and Bob. You know, the two egg characters that have uh, taken part in both his... Oh, he's that guy! Yeah. I do know him. I was just pretending I knew who the hell you were talking about. Really? (laughs) I love this guy. (laughs) I remember the eggs. Do you? <laughs> Do they kind of like, they talk, but yeah. they didn't really make like, a uh, little subtitle. Eh, 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 eh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of stuff, yeah. I was just playing a log. Would you? <laughs> I did look him up, but I didn't make that connection until just now. Yeah. Wasn't there a commercial that he did with those characters? I can't remember seeing that. Yeah, he did, um, I think he did like Ivranka Butter or something like that, but with cows in the Weebles. Oh yeah, little cow-spotted egg. Yeah, things, and he does yeah. the cream eggs as well, but he does Goofies, so Weeble and Bob's uh, guide to the Goofies, which is a great vehicle to put Weeble and Bob like dressed up as Back to the Future or Alien okay. or something like that. It's quite funny, you know. It's nice. very sort of uh, in the same same humour vein as his. He does talk a little bit in the interview about balancing commercial work as well, yeah. which is I think it's always interesting to hear how different people approach that subject. But yeah, so apart from Weeble and Bob, you've got my personal favourite on the moon, mm-hmm. where the Toast King presides. That is the King of the Moon, and there's only him and Insanity Prawn Boy and whatever other characters are needed for the story. Uh-huh. I've no idea where this man gets his ideas from. I mean, how do you come up with the idea of a regal, a toast king? It's it's just insane. Yeah. You know, 
Uh, other things people might recognise him from are uh, Magical Trevor. He did a, a similar, I think it was 118, one of these 118 call numbers right, lines right. for like directory services. He did that in the, in the same tune right. uh, as Magical Trevor. He also does Catface. I believe long before the Meerkats, it was some sort of like Eastern European accented small animal, but this cat floats around, his head floats. Ah, I don't like cats, but I like Catface. He's a bastard like all cats. Ah, good. So a fair representation then. Yeah, an exact representation of cats. Before we um, completely alienate the cat lovers amongst the squiggly audience, we should probably move on to the interview. This is Steve talking to John T. Picking, a.k.a. Weeble. John T. Picking. Hello. Weeble. Yes. Uh, From um, Weeble Stuff. Thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Congratulations. Ten years of Weeble Stuff. Mm. Uh, Did you ever expect that creations would have such longevity? Not at all. I mean, it's ridiculous, the early ones, and like so crappy, basically. Yeah. But clearly they've connected in some sort of way and lasted this long, and, you know, it's nice. We've got, like, new generations coming in all the time and finding the old stuff and appreciating the new stuff, so it's fantastic. But the fact that I just make silly songs and animations for it is just a dream come true for most people, I'm sure. Mm. So how does the creative process work? over at Weeble stuff. I mean, um, when it comes to creating a character, an idea, or, I mean... It, it changes, whether it, like, depending if it's, a, say, a series like Catface or Weeble and Bob, or one of the standalone ones like Shrimps or Badgers or Kenya or something like that. Generally, with the series, I've got a very sort of good impression of what the characters are like, and I'll often design the characters and sort of... I tend not to storyboard too much and leave that up to the animators that we use, give them a little bit of free reign, and then I'll go over their animatics and go, oh, change this camera angle, do this, do that. But I think it's nice to give them, like, show me what you do with this. It, it, and it expands the look and feel, really. Mm. So you start with an initial character and then you go from there and they take it and make it their own. I think that's really good. But with the songs, I'll sit down, play a tune and go, oh, here's something in my head, and that is the song, and suddenly you're singing about shrimp xylophone, so, which makes no sense, but then you go, right, who wants to do this, and I'll go, who's free today, show me what you'd like to do with this, and then, okay, and I'll little tweaks again, and then they go off and do it. So do you have particular influences then for, for the songs, or, I mean, do you have a, a, any sort of comedians or any sort of animators that you're, or musicians that you're a fan of? Yeah, clearly, I'm fans of lots of animators and lots of musicians, but um, the animators themselves have their own influences as well, which I think mm. is brilliant and fantastic. But it's good to have a little, put your individual spin on things, you can't just like make your Ren and Stimpy again or that no. sort of thing. But um, yeah, uh, music-wise, I've, I find that a lot of musical comedy just tends to be some chap with an acoustic guitar, and that to me is just laziness. It's like, well, let's do, let's put a bit of effort in, let's make a good tune. It's also funny, mm. and and some people do that. Certainly, like Tim Minchin does a fair bit. He's quite acoustic, but you know he's he's got breadth and depth. And obviously, comedy-wise, you've got yeah Monty Python, Vic Reeves, Spike Milligan as well. Huge influence, vastly overlooked, I think. It's the English sort of thing, the like love of absurdness and Dada is sort of life is just crazy and strange. Let's just take it and expand on that sort of thing 
kind of, the non-joke joke as well like that was a Monty Python speciality like no punchline but it, it is funny all the way through mm. I think that's a huge influence yeah a question from Victoria Edmonds. Did you have any other job before Weevil Stuff or did you attend university or do a course in animation? I uh, never did a course in animation. I was kind of just like messing around over many, many years. I always drew and doodled and like characters and that sort of thing. I did art foundation and that's kind of as far as my uh, schooling in art went. And from then on it was like, oh, the music's very interesting. So I went off and did a music course and then somehow ended up doing websites and then Flash came along, it's like Flash was the thing and I got brought down to London because my Flash skills were all right. During like uh, quiet periods of learning new tools more and it kind of blossomed from there and suddenly I'm doing animations for MTV for a living. I'm like, brilliant. So, and then never looked back. So it was kind of all pox and fluke and chance. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I've done my chair of crappy jobs as well. Like 3 a.m. shifts in the Tesco warehouse in minus five degrees. Optic fibre factories, which sounds like it could be fun, but when you're pulling little glass shards out of your fingers, that's not so good. Yeah, animators don't factory. need that, do they? The yeah, fingers. no. Well, uh, you know, I wasn't animating back then, so yeah. I, was, I was just like sucking up, oh, I've got to do something, yeah. <laughs> Where did you go to uni? Or, or I, I did college at Barnsley, uh, creative music tech. So they had a media, a multimedia sort of section of that, and that kind of opened my mind to like, oh, we can do these things, and that's kind of where the love of internets and everything sort of grew blossomed. Yeah, of course, it was all very new back then, and everyone used AOL, which was like, didn't really have much choice back then. No. Yeah. Especially in Barnsley. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to Barnsley College myself. Um, a question from Nathan Wilkes. Last we'll this one. What advice would you give to somebody trying to get to the same place as you are now? I'm probably not the best person to ask because it has all been kind of a chance, really. But um, I think practice, practice, practice is key. I mean, you're not going to be an overnight success unless something crazy has happened and you are like the god of animation. To be honest, not many people are. No. But um, yeah, it's just keep at it. It's not an easy job. <laughs> you will work stupid late nights. You'll often be up till five in the morning, just and um, as long as you keep at it and you are trying to improve and want to be funny and doing it for the right reasons, I think hopefully you should get there. Do you have a particular favourite creation that you've done for either like um, music, games, adverts, animations, anything that you've created in the past decade that's uh, a particular favourite? I, I really love the uh, Walk in the Woods animation. I just think. Because it started out with the rabbit and the woods, and I thought this looks like nothing I've done before. I'm quite pleased. And it's like the bear arrives and he flies off on a big tower of crap. And it's like it was going to end there, and I thought, no, what happens next? How far can I take this? And then it, there's suddenly it's like rhinos and airplanes crashing and they're in space, and there's like pathos and all that. And I thought, I've actually made something quite worthwhile here. I was really pleased with that. Yeah, it was, I, I thought it was fantastic with the uh, with the um, bear chases up with the crisps. Yeah, <laughs> when he turns up with the crisps, I, I thought that was particularly funny, as well as the rhino jet propelled. Yeah, <laughs> flagging them off. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about the team on Weeble stuff? Yeah, so you work with a few yeah. a few more people. 
Um, well, we've got uh, Peebo who's been with us for a fair while now. He's, he's brilliant. I just go, here you go, Peebo, and he goes off and does his thing. And he's like Helen Daniels on Neighbours, who'd never finish, show her for pitch before he was finished. And I go, Joe, what are you doing? He's like, no, he's not finished yet. He's like, no, you got it. And then it'll arrive and you go, that's brilliant. So I just leave him to his thing now. He's mm. fantastic. Um, and we've got a uh, well, sexual lobster or greasy moose who's actually called Chris Voigt. He lives in Australia. Um, he's really good. He's, he's got his own style. He does, he's done a Dance of the Manhole, which has been pretty popular on its own in uh, Newgrounds and YouTube. But he, he's like, hopefully he's happy working with us as well. He's growing and he's, he'll be fantastic and better than I ever was. It's fairly soon, I'm sure. Mm. And uh, Zeke, Spacey Lizard. Why do people have such odd names on it? <laughs> He's in America. I, I, this is the weird thing. I've never met either Chris or um, Zeke. So, but yeah, one day hopefully. And uh, he, he can, tends to do the cat faces and the uh, weeble and bobs. But he's also doing an uh, 8-bit one as well at the moment. Right. So, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about the 8-bit one? Is this something that people have to go on the website to he's, he's not finished yet. I'm, I, I've left him to his own devices on this because I said he's not got any words. It's just music. I tried to get him to use the little 8-bit uh, pixel art flash plugin, but he doesn't like it so much. So I'm intrigued as to what he's actually going to do. Hmm. Do you have a different head for each creation? Like, do you put on your Weevil and Bob head? Do you put on your yeah, Toast King head? Yeah, I try and work a character with a bit more... They've got reasons for doing this sort of hmm. thing. This is their motivation for this sort of thing. It gives you, and I think their own laugh as well helps define them as the character's cat faces like <laughs> and we people and Bob is like that and uh, well yeah and obviously in Sandy and Sandy Prom by wow that was rubbish let me try that <laughs> but it helps define them as a character you know what I mean yeah yes. you've got to give them a bit more roundness and maybe it doesn't really come across but in my head I, I think subtly it comes across at least I, I seem to confuse a lot of people but hopefully yeah not all the time <laughs> I think Insanity of Prawn Boy is probably my favourite of all the characters. Mm. And when you did the uh, Prawn to be Wild yes. game, I absolutely I love that. When, when Insanity of Prawn Boy, a journey to where he was via shops, old ladies' bowels, uh, you know, every, every <laughs> space and time, just, just yeah. to, get, to get there. That must have been quite a, a treat to work on, something like that. It really was fun to work on. I mean, that was nice. That was a commission-like job for T-Mobile, I believe. But they just let us go wild, and it was just fantastic to have that much free reign to do something that we thought was pretty good. Uh, there's obviously a difference between working with the client and working on your own stuff. Um, you, but you seem to you seem to have quite a, a big output of your own things. There's always there's always cat faces. Always, uh, you know, there's always these new episodes coming out. Weedle and Bob's. I mean, how how do you juggle it? How do you sort of what takes priority? How you know how do you make priority? Um, I think you've just got to keep writing, keep writing, keep pushing. I mean, uh, I try these days to sort of build a little backlog of people working on stuff. This is the whole point of having extra animators. And we don't do stuff every week anymore either because I think I'd rather do something I can go. Yeah, I'm proud of that. I'll write stuff. Say here you go. This is what you can do. I'll play around songs. If songs aren't happening, I'll be writing more stuff. And it's, it's like kind of an ebb and flow between the two. And the songs kind of take 
it's the hardest thing to do really because it's like I don't want to repeat myself I don't want to be doing the same song every time you know it's quite easy to do the same thing again and again and a fair few people are quite happy with that but I don't want to do just 50 times I'll do variations that I think are amusing to me I think at the end of the day it's got to be amusing to me good advice really if yeah. you don't believe in it yourself yeah. is that the sort is that the way you can be from if you don't believe much, in the yeah. work yourself then got, there's no point yeah I think an authentic sort of voice is the key as well definitely otherwise why are you doing it it's just the job then there's no joy or love in it so where did the idea for Weeble and Bob come from Reed and Bob started as um, it was kind of an experiment in seeing how simple an idea I could make because flashback then computers weren't what they were and you know download speeds were very slow. I thought if I do simple shapes, simple animation, it's going to run smoothly. Load times will be next to nothing, and everyone will be able to watch it. And it kind of stemmed from that, and it's like how how simple. Well, the voice has got to be simple as well, so you go. It's all kind of about that and obviously over time you've got slightly more complicated and plots have come in and this sort of thing and but that's basically the core of it. How about um, On the Moon? The initial idea was to do a 30 second long animation with sci-fi sort of connotations and anything can happen on the moon so anything sci-fi, anything spacey can go off and that bit obviously the episode, even the first one was like longer than 30 seconds I'm sure. Yeah. So that was that. So it's like, well, if you look at the first episodes of most of my best series, they start off with the most idiotic, random, just one thing happens, and that's it. And then we go from there, and hopefully, the characters have been sort of defined and introduced. So yeah, yeah. I like the the backgrounds of the on the moon. You always see like a, a spaceship. You'll see the TARDIS. You'll yeah. see. Are you running out of? Uh... <laughs> I leave that up to Pebo. He's, yeah. he's good. But uh, yeah, it's, every now and again, it's like, what can we do? But like, there have been some throwbacks to some of our space-based cartoons. So, who's to say like the huge penis from Branches isn't going to be in the next on the moon? I don't know. <laughs> leave that up to Pebo. Yeah. Yeah. What about Catface then? Catface. Catface was based around our cats. It was like. He's, he doesn't even look anything like Catface, but we were always like... You float around the house. Yeah, he's, well, he's, you know, yeah, cats kind of do float, don't they? They're very soft. But it's like, how do cats speak? Oh, I just talk like this, you know? And he's off with, oh, man, he treats. So he, he just, there you go. And it's like, oh, well, there's an idea, and we'll go off with that. But uh, now my wife, uh, Sarah Darling, or Miss Darlizzle, uh, writes most of the cat faces now, just a little edit here and there, and that sort of thing. Add a little tweak. It's like, oh, that sentence isn't quite what Catface would say. It's nice that I can like, step back a bit from that and see where other people are taking. Mm. Again, it's a different voice. And when you're dealing with several series, I think it's important not to just regurgitate, regurgitate the same thing again. And it's hard to do it if you are writing all of them. I think. So, what sort of equipment do you use? What's the what's the favourite equipment? Uh, for the music, Reason by Propellerheads, which is just brilliant, it's all self-contained. It's quite an old-school way of working because you've got a rack of faux sort of modules, really, which are all patched together. So it's ridiculously powerful if you want to get really deep down into it. I love that. And for sample editing, uh, Adobe Audition, I believe it's called now. It used to be Cool Edit, a new version that scrub back and forth really quickly. So yeah, the sound's obviously quite important to me as a like sound engineer of Barnsley alumni. <laughs> I never went to my like, what's it called when you 
like grad graduation. Graduation. I never went to it. I think people just pick a certificate somewhere yeah, there, I know, and Barnsley, at the old mill lane. Let's let's not go too wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, and then obviously for the animation side, it's a mixture of Flash and After Effects. Flash, we all know and hate, but uh, After Effects lets you grade it, take away sort of like it's so pristine and computerized, soften the edges, add a bit of a glow, grade things, make it look a bit fancy. Lens flare if I'm feeling crazy. Yeah. Um, and you need a bit of grunt and computer that can handle it. So you know, I, I try and get a new computer every three years or so. I'm begging the wife now. Just, no, you don't need one. But like, no. <laughs> After Effects needs Nvidia graphics cards. Why? Why tie me down? <laughs> I need to be free. <laughs> Hopefully she'll hear this plea. Yes, it's, it's on record oh, now. You made me cry, woman. <laughs> so, um, ten years in, mm -hmm. still popular. People are still going online watching them. Uh, but obviously, everyone always says the internet's changing. The way that people view things yes. is changing. Mobile phones, tablets, things like that. Mm -hmm. Where do you see uh, Weeble's stuff? What's the direction? Do you think? It's, it's hard. To say where we're going to be because who can say I mean when YouTube first started there was no way of making a living off it really mm. and now most people naturally flock to YouTube because they put the means in place to make a living um, and also that's where the audience is and I think as a result a lot of personal websites are dying uh, Newgrounds as well they used to be the Flash place but it's a lot of the old Flash arts are in the same place to me is like well, I don't want to do just flash now I don't do pure anything let's make a video and spread it around and they've tried but I don't think they're quite there yet so yeah I think the internet as a whole is getting smaller as the big boys kind of take over and societies and groups are formed around those rather than forums and social media has also had a huge effect on that like forums are just dead everywhere mm. but people use Twitter to it used to be, oh, have you seen this link? I'll go here and you settle on the place. And you go, oh, I like this. Here's a little community I can be part of. And now it's like, well, Twitter's my community. Facebook's my community. So I think it is quite a lot harder in a way to get to the same sort of place we were back there. But at the same time, it's been made a lot easier to get people to notice you on one of the big sites. Can you connect with your audience in the same way? Probably not. Mm -hmm. But you could if you put a lot of effort into it, which means you're not actually making the things that grows the audience. So it's sort of a balance and yeah, it's sort of a, a hard act. A weird thing to do. Mm. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Thank you. So that was John T. Picking, also known as Weeble. You could probably tell that that was recorded in the pub because it wasn't that quiet. You could hear the sirens in the background and general traffic noise. I think that's good. It will put the listeners at ease. That kind of general familiar ambiance. So he's never actually met the animators who work for him. Yeah, two of them. He's not met two of the animators. It's quite interesting uh, in the world of you know when we got the internet and things like that. It's mm. it's quite a um, sounds like an idyllic relationship. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you can still get told off over email if you if you don't do anything a director tells you to. One time I made an avid editor cry over the phone. He uh, I won't say which company this was for. Basically, it wasn't avid. It was Final Cut. 
and um, he had some some issues with you know using the software with the footage that I'd you know FTP'd over, uh, and they all essentially boiled down to he didn't know how to use Final Cut, and didn't know what a codec was, and basically you know the company gives you very specific um, information as to what format and what you know frame rate and what compression and blah 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 so you make sure all those boxes are ticked exactly and then this guy who I think may have been um, new or possibly an intern but uh, had all the the that wonderful pairing of not quite enough experience and a lot of cocky swagger so he was convinced that he was absolutely in the right and I kind of Without yelling and without sort of losing my, my temper with him, I did kind of have to systematically explain all of the things that he was doing wrong and talk him through it, and he got a bit uh, flustered. And I found out later on from our boss that he'd retreated to the toilet stalls to cry. So that's why it's important to never, ever meet the people you work with. And hopefully in an ideal future, we never will. There are times after our podcast that I run off to the toilet to have a little cry, Ben. It is just the effect they have on me. But don't you feel like you've, you've grown afterwards no uh, I'm a hateful hateful person next up we have part one of a two part chat with John Kreese for Lucy a man I and many others would consider to be one of the most game changing faces of animation having worked through something of a dark age of animation in the 80s he made a real push as far as reclaiming proper cartoony cartoons made by cartoonists and set in motion a bit of a resurgence of creator-driven properties, stuff like The New Mighty Mouse and, most crucially, Ren and Stimpy, a show I've gushed over in previous podcasts. He went on to forge a highly reputed career in music videos, TV specials, and also as a pioneer of web-based animation, kind of keeping in with this podcast theme. And really, that all just scratches the surface. Uh, he's also an avid blogger. His site, All Kinds of Stuff, is a treasure trove of animation theory, uh, impassioned opinions and dissections of animation culture, both old and new, as well as candid documentation of his own personal projects and how they develop. The latest of which is a short film called Cans Without Labels, starring one of his most beloved recurring characters, George Licker, American. He's gathering the funds to make it through Kickstarter. It's a crowdfunding method that's proved successful for independent and professional filmmakers in an era of diminished network commissions and government funding, especially as far as animation goes. I'm a big advocate of incentive-based schemes like these, and these are some pretty cool rewards, especially if you're a John K. fan or animation fan in general, but there's only so much I can wax fanboyish about it, so let's let the man himself take it away. This is John Kreese for Lucy. Well, I mean, first of all, it's very exciting to see, you know, a new cartoon in the works, um, a George Licker cartoon, no less, um, and he's a character that's that's been with you for quite some time, right? Yeah, George Licker goes back to uh, the same time when I created Ren and Stimpy, about 1980. Uh-huh. So he, he was one of the main characters in the original Ren and Stimpy pitch, and I took the show around um, all through the 80s to all the networks, to NBC, ABC, CBS, all the Saturday morning cartoon networks. And uh, they all thought it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually got thrown out of NBC one time. They got the security guards. <laughs> they grabbed me and like hauled me out of there. Was George looking more of a focus at that point? Or was he was it... one of the main characters. He was Rand and Snippy's master. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I, I mean, you know, one of the first stories that I, that I wrote was called Wilderness Adventure. Right. And it was where George Licker takes his dogs Ren and Stimpy. Uh, George doesn't uh, get cats. Right. He just thinks it's a weird, funny-looking dog. So he calls Stimpy. Uh, he calls him Rex and Champy. Oh. 
He takes them out to the wilderness. George gets sick of the soft suburban living. Mm-hmm. He looks at his, his gut and he's like, oh, getting soft. I gotta get out and be a man. Uh-huh. Run the wilderness and survive. And I'll bring my dogs with me. He loves dogs, right? Uh-huh. So he takes them out into the wilderness and they rough it for like five days. They get lost in the wilderness. So that was one of the first stories, and that was one of the ones I would pitch to everybody. I actually have a Bob Jakes and I. Bob Jakes is a great animator from Canada, a friend of mine, one of the main animators on Ren and Stimpy, and he, uh, his studio, Carbuncle, animated um, all the best episodes. Uh-huh. Anyways, long before we ever actually animated Ren and Stimpy, he and I were just driving through Van Nuys, and um, we drove by a liquor store. They had this giant sign, giant neon sign that said, George Liquor. And I and I and I scream, Bob, ah, stop, 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 stop! So Bob screeches to us like, what, 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 what? And he looks over and he's like, whoa! He starts laughing his ass off, right? And I jumped up and I took a picture of it, and uh, I made Bob like drive home to to a little apartment I was staying in, and uh, I quickly sketched up this bug-eyed guy with buck teeth and, and a shotgun out in the middle of the forest, beer cans all over the littered all over the floor. They're shooting up the whole uh, wilderness. And that was the birth of George Licker. George, that was actually the only time I ever instantly thought of a character, knew exactly what he looked like, and knew everything about him. It was just something about that sign. It was a little tiny liquor store and a huge sign. And, you know, this guy instantly popped into my head. Hmm. Just exactly the way he is. Just knew everything about it. it was weird. I mean, he sort of binds the whole Spumco universe together in a way. Like he keeps popping up, and he's sort of the the main constant. That kind of force of nature that he is. Well, I, he's also uh, got a lot of traits that my dad has, uh-huh, uh-huh. which you know, I guess is in the Kickstarter video. But uh, he's like the American version of my dad. My dad is a real manly Canadian dad. George is like a manly American dad sort of character. Uh-huh. So they have some differences. The same differences that the general Canadian has with the, the American. I mean, you know, he's from the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. George Licker was in the big one. The war of 1978 between Canada and the United States. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Before they started having wars over oil, they had wars over beer. Right. Because Canada has much better beer resources than America does. American beer tastes like piss. Canadian beer is a real thing. That's a man's beer. Uh-huh. So George's neighborhood that he lives in is called Decentville. And it's the last decent place in America that isn't corrupted by modern culture. Decent goes right on the border between Canada and the United States. And there's a big fat dotted line, like on the map. Uh-huh. And there's bushes all around the dotted line. And George is always peering over the bushes, you know, uh, to see what those dirty commies are doing in Canada. But really, he just wants to sneak across and buy some Labatt 50, which is the world's most manly beer. Uh-huh. You can't even get it in the United States. It's too manly. <laughs> So George, you know, he was part of the war where the Americans wanted to steal all the all the Canadian beers. You're going to have such a huge backstory behind that. You know, is that sort of help like really solidify when you're doing something with the character and you know so much about his history, it's all kind of worked out? Well, not with all my characters. Ren and Stimpy don't have much of a backstory. Uh-huh. You know, George is a little bit more in the sitcom world than Ren and Stimpy. Ren and Stimpy was sort of half cartoon, half sitcom. Mm-hmm. George Licker is maybe, you know, 40% cartoon, 60% sitcom. Right, right. So there's, I wouldn't say it's totally grounded in reality, because obviously we do crazy cartoon jokes that you can't do in real life. Yeah, I guess because he's human, he has more more of a backstory. Uh-huh. I don't always use it. 
I just kind of know it. Yeah. And they did always work together very well, the episodes with, with him. And I guess there were only a few in the end where he would be their master or he would sort of have them, you know, by his side. Always had a great kind of dynamic. Like, he did slot into that world very well. Uh, the funny part is they, they hated him at Nickelodeon. That was the, one of the characters. I mean, they loved Rand Sippy. Uh-huh. And they liked Mr. Horace. But they hated George Licker. So all through the first season, I was not allowed to do any of the George Licker cartoons. And we had storyboarded out wilderness adventure jim smith did this magnificent epic storyboard and uh they rejected it which i you know we, we couldn't figure it out it was like one of our best storyboards but they just didn't like the character i, I think because he was too manly and <laughs> too republican uh nickelodeon was run by uh by hippie ladies ex-hippies actually <laughs> uh-huh. and, you know they were nice and everything but for some reason they thought george liquor was a threat to everything that they held dear they didn't they didn't get the satire of you know, George Lick is a little bit like Archie Bunker in, in uh, All of the Family, where, you know, it's not really condoning Archie's behavior. It's making fun of Do you think maybe they weren't giving a younger audience credit to be able to d- determine the satirical elements? So I think kids are actually quite astute, and they can sort of work that kind of stuff out, but I don't think maybe network people give kids, like, credit to be able to sort of determine, okay, this is a farcical character... And this is a serious character. They thought he was real. They thought George was real. And yeah. I think it's because, you know, because we draw so many of the expressions and all the expressions are custom made yeah. in our tunes. He seems more real than just an abstract written character. It's like hard to explain. But right. We made a cartoon called Man's Best Friend, mm-hmm. second season. Like I talked them into using George the second season because in the first season, there were some cartoons that they wanted me to dump that turned out to be the most popular cartoons. And once that happened, I went back to them during the summer between the two seasons. You know, now that the show's a big hit, can you trust me a little more to do some of the stuff that you're worried about? I mean, you guys rejected Stimpy's Invention over and over again, and it's one of the most popular episodes. Mm. So they said, yeah, 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 John, you've proven to us that, you know, you know what you're doing. So I said, can I bring back George Laker then? And they were like, mm, well, okay, I guess so. And the dog show, mm. which they were crazy about, but they, but they aired it. And then we did Man's Best Friend, which was my favorite. And that one, they just freaked out. I, they, just, they couldn't take it, couldn't handle it. Even though they approved it at the uh, at the storyboard stage and the layouts and everything, once the film came back, it was so intense that they looked at me and they said, well, I couldn't even imagine it was gonna be like this. And I said, well, every one of these poses is in the storyboard. But they, you know, it's not the same thing as, I guess, reading a storyboard and seeing the finished film where it has the music, it has the animation, like the sound effects maybe as well kind of add to or would yes, that have been there effects, in the beginning? it's the whole experience right yeah yeah and we played with everything we didn't just write a script and then have the characters stand there and read the voices we, you know we we add we we take advantage of every uh aspect of, of the cartoon including the sound we really worked on sound as much as we worked on on the picture mm-hmm. so when you see it all together it's pretty intense so they reject it and they wouldn't run it it was banned for years and years and, you know, I used to run it at uh, festivals and comic conventions and stuff, movie theaters, and people always went nuts. There's a scene in the, near the end where Randa has a fight for its liquor, and, it's, and we did it as sort of an homage to uh, Raging Bull, as a slow motion black and white scene in it and everything, where Ren hits George with a horror. It's animated by Kelly Armstrong. It's just on, it's really good animation. And we played the, slow, the sound effect of the hit in real slow motion to it. You just see his head twist around with all these cracking noises in it. 
when that runs in a movie theater, people stand up in the middle of it and just start screaming. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. And kids love it too. So we finally released it um, on the Ren and Snippy DVD. So, but even there, they hit it. It's like you have to hunt around for it. It's an Easter egg or something. It's hard to find, but it's, it's on there. And every, it's a very popular episode. I think that level of... I mean, violence is the word, but it's it's with a cartoon that it never gets to the point of like you know it's not like you're putting no, it's a kid. Slapstick. It's like yeah. prestigious violence. Exactly, and uh, and and the funny part is the parts that, that the network hated the most are the parts where the audience cheers. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just amazing how networks really don't have a connection to the audience. They mm -hmm. really don't know what the audience likes, and they you know they keep handicapping like, the creative people. Who live to entertain an audience? It's just, it's just weird, yeah. weird situation. That's why this Kickstarter thing is so amazing. Yeah. How did you hear about Kickstarter and, and those types? Well, of I kind of knew about it. Uh, I knew that Nick Cross, the great artist in Canada that I've worked with, yeah, was funding Father, his right? own films. Yeah. He does independent. He he works during the day, you know, at Nelvana, doing uh, you know Saturday morning type cartoons, and then. Uh, evenings and weekends he makes his own films really amazing films he does them by crowdfunding you know he gets the stuff done i didn't think people would actually pay for anything on the internet because for years people were allergic to paying for things i mean they, they wanted to bootleg everything yeah so i, I finally tried it and you know, i'm amazed at how, how it's doing pretty well there's a i mean the film has a great uh, backstory to it um of uh, your father's frugal nature i guess during your childhood when i was a kid wasn't allowed to drink this because it had a brand label on it. Uh -huh. Brand name. I could have generic. Right. Generic will cost one third of uh, what the brand name's in. My dad was completely against brand names. With the thing he really liked, he loved to save money, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't like to waste any money. There was a supermarket nearby that uh, had a shelf at the back of the store where they sold damaged goods, right? Yeah. And they, they'd marked the price way down. So that at the bottom of the shelf were all these cans. They had no labels on them. All they had was a big fat marker that said five cents or 10 cents or two cents or whatever. So he didn't know what was in the cans. My dad would just collect all of those up, bring them home, and he'd make us eat what was in the cans. And he didn't know what was in the cans, right? But, uh -huh. but my dad thought he could figure it out. He thought he was a scientist. He was a can scientist. <laughs> so he would, he would study how many rings are on the can, whether it was a gold label or a silver label. And uh, then he would shake it, he'd listen to the sound, and, he, and he'd spend a couple minutes like putting it all together and he'd say, um, bingo, it's beef stew. <laughs> and we knew there was no beef stew in there. There wasn't anything edible in there, no spaghettios or anything like that. Nothing that you would want to eat. And the thing is, it didn't matter whether there was beef stew in there or there wasn't. He had a rule. You couldn't waste anything. So once he started to open the can, even if it wasn't beef stew, you had to eat what was in it, because otherwise, you'd be wasting food. And if you're wasting food, that means somehow you're harming the Biafran kids who are starving. Right? Uh -huh. You know, starving Biafran kids would, would would do for a nice can without labels. And we're like, send them, send them to the Biafran kids. Uh -huh. They piss them off. So we had to eat what was ever in the can. It was always something completely gruesome, nasty stuff. We had a limp chicken. The chicken, the skin was coming off, and the whole head, the whole thing was there, right? The head was floating around. It had staples in its ears. Nasty stuff. So, you know, 
I came up with this idea, like, why not tell the story through a cartoon? And had George Licker uh, serve his kids cans without labels. That, that, that's the origin of this. A lot of the George Licker stories are kind of based on things that happened when I was a kid, things my dad did. Uh-huh. Has your father played a role in, like, previous stuff you've worked on? So now at one point, didn't he do a voice in one of the Ren and Stimpy? He's done some voices in uh, the Spike version of uh, Ren and Stimpy. Uh-huh. He, did a, he did a lobster in one. He did a cop in another one. He did, oh, he did the voice of Ren's dad. Uh-huh. Ren's dad is a priest, uh-huh. which is kind of funny because my own dad's father, my grandfather, he was a priest. He was a, uh, a Ukrainian Orthodox priest. He built a church and everything. Supposedly, he was really, really severe with my dad. So my dad thought he was like raising us easy. You know, we had the soft life compared to how he grew up living on a farm where they had to scrape for rice and <laughs> bugs. Okay, he would have horror stories, but when he was a kid, you kids got it easy. You don't know. Dirty <laughs> hippies. You don't appreciate what we're giving you. <laughs> I realize it now, but I didn't then. Uh-huh. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> Is he a fan of uh, the work you do now? Sometimes. Uh-huh. He's always, we just did it. He's always telling me what I shouldn't do. Like, I just did a cartoon for Stussy. Uh-huh. Starring Bobby Bigloaf and uh, George Licker's nephew, Slab and Ernie, uh-huh. who are the local bullies. Bobby Bigloaf's a nerd. He's a comic book nerd like I was when I was a kid, right? And Slab and Ernie are like mean little kids who are bullies. They pick on, you know, kids that are smaller than them, than yeah. them or, or wimpy or they, they gang up. So I did a cartoon about bullying, basically. It's a funny cartoon about bullying with fighting in it. So. Plus it has some UFC type stuff in it. Uh-huh. It's Brazilian jiu-jitsu in it. <laughs> and... Uh, so that came out, you know, a month ago, and my dad saw it and goes, well, it's cute, but you're gonna get in shit. John, you can't do cartoons about bullying anymore. Everybody hates bullies now. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. you were a goddamn bully when you were a kid. Yeah, that's different. You were left to be a bully back then. He always thinks that somebody politically correct is gonna sue me for drawing a sexy girl or drawing bullies or doing something politically incorrect. He thinks he'd go to jail for it. With all the, the concern and, and the network issues and stuff like that, going back to the, the Ren and Stimpy days, was, were there ever actually repercussions of, of that kind of nature of, of, like, I don't know, militant groups or, or people who would complain en masse, or was it just kind of, did it just play out fine? Because it doesn't seem like there was a huge backlash ever. No, there was only one bad review. And it was before the cartoon ever came out. I don't remember this exactly, but I think maybe Nickelodeon, when they were first starting Nicktoons, before they actually aired the cartoons, they probably some trailers or excerpts of the cartoons to the press. Mm-hmm. And there was one lady, some, I don't know who she was, who wrote just a little article in the newspapers. And I remember, I don't remember which newspaper. And she was horrified. Mm-hmm. So we were really nervous when the show came out. We thought, oh man, we're gonna get skewered. You know, all the parents groups gonna be after us. All the religious groups are gonna wanna, Lynch us. And surprisingly, when the show came out, it was the opposite. We got a million letters, not just from the kids, but from parents. We had parents writing us saying, um, thanks for Ren and Stimpy because it, you know, all during the week, me and my kids are fighting about this and that. And on the Sunday, Sunday mornings, we all get together. It's the one thing we all agree on. We like to laugh to Ren and Stimpy. Mm-hmm. I got letters from priests <laughs> saying, you know, I love your show, but can you do me a favor? And, and uh, not run it on Sundays during church because I have to, you know, otherwise I have to record it and sometimes I forget to set the machine. <laughs> we had, I had lots of uh, letters from gay couples, you know, saying, 
we really identify with Ren and Snippy because me and my companion are always having these knockdown fights. But then we get together afterwards and, and you know, we're all happy. <laughs> so it was weird. I mean, I, I expected the kids to like it. I, you know, I knew the kids would like it because we made it for them. I was amazed when it pretty much, you know, ended up being a family show without trying to be a family show. Cool. Are the Ren and Stimpy characters, are they like retired at this point or is there any sort of potential future in some form or other? Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of episodes that we wrote and storyboarded and, and are ready to go. Uh-huh. But fortunately, I don't know what happened with Spike. They just cracked up. They, they ran about two or three episodes and then they stopped, which is weird. Had they gone to a second season, we'd probably still be doing Ren and Stimpy by now. Yeah. But as it is, you know, it was a long time ago and whoever's at Nickelodeon now in Viacom had nothing to do with the original show, so I don't, I don't think they're going to be that interested in reviving it. Right. But I have a million other characters. Yeah. And with this Kickstarter thing, uh, this is a way really, if it works, to be direct with the audience. Just give the audience what they want. Yeah. Don't have two people second-guessing everything you do. Complete creative control and, and the product for the audience, <laughs> for you, for everyone, yeah. See, uh, an entertainer is going to listen to the audience, right? If you're a stand-up comedian and you go up and you tell a bunch of jokes that you thought were, were hilarious and there's silence, mm. there's crickets, well, you're going to revise your uh, your routine. It's a little harder to do that with animation because you can't do it live, but with the internet and with Kickstarter and crowdfunding, this is the best invention ever for entertainers, I think. Mm. How long do you expect the, the finished film to run at? It's going to be about a Ren and Snippy length. I haven't timed it yet because we haven't made an animatic yet. So but it'll be like Space Madness or Snippy's Invention. Cool. So and if we go well over the... Uh, sometimes I see projects get a lot... You know, maybe they get twice as much as what they asked for. Well, if we do, we'll make another cartoon and add it to it. Mm-hmm. And once you're able to get the funds and Do you have an idea of, of like a production plan at this point? Or is it just you get the money and then you just start and then it's done when it's done. Well, we gave ourselves a little bit of a padding. Mm-hmm. We said seven months from the time we get the money because they also, um, it takes Amazon or Kickstarter, I think about a month to actually get you the, uh, the funds. Right, okay. So I wanted to be sure that you know, we had everything done before we send it out. But if we get it done earlier, we'll send it earlier. And you've, you've put together quite a bit of material already before like starting the the project which is something I, I really with a, the sort of independent filmmakers people like Plimpton and others and um, uh, you mentioned Nick Cross being sort of proactive on their own steam would you recommend that as a process for someone if they have an idea to just like get on and create something like some visuals or a pitch bible or something just in their own time well there's a something that I think is a slight hazard in that like, I love the old studio system mm-hmm. because, you know, if you look at old cartoons, obviously the animation is a thousand times better than the animation in anything today. Yeah. You know, a cartoon from 1938 or 39 is just leagues ahead of anything anybody does today. And the reason is, it's not just that they were left alone by the executives, that, that's a big reason, but it was because all the animation was done in-house and everybody knew each other mm-hmm. and they all evolved, they all grew. You know, with trial and error and practice, they went from Steamboat Willie in 1928 to Snow White in 1937, in nine years. Right. Uh, if you leave artists to their own devices and you let them work together, that's what happens. They naturally evolve. They get better. You get better with practice. But the system we have right now doesn't allow for that. 
because all the animation is done overseas or it's done in flash, budgets are too low, and what I think is a terrible thing is the networks now have this crazy idea in their head that they think that every series should come from somebody who's like 18 years old, who has no experience, who doesn't know how anything works, but they just have a great idea. Well, there's no such thing as a great idea. You're not going to write a great symphony just because you have an idea for a symphony. You need years of practice and experience and you need to work with an orchestra. Uh, in the old studio system, the animators worked their way up. You didn't start as a director. Right. The person who's going to make a film is the director. And you don't just like jump out of high school when you're a director. Bob Clampett jumped out of high school. He, he started at uh, Harmon and Ising, who made the first Looney Tunes in about 1930 or so. He was 16 years old when he started. Mm -hmm. And he started as an in-betweener. That's, that's the absolute best way. Right. Start as an in-betweener working for an experienced animator. So you learn from the animator. Then if you're good enough, they'll promote you to the animator. And then once you're an animator, you're really starting to understand how the medium works. Maybe you're a really funny guy or something like that. If you're a really funny guy and you know how to animate, well then they move you over to the storyboard department and you start writing stories. But when you're writing the stories, you now know how animation works so you gear your stories to take advantage of, of the process of animation. Right. You know, if you're good at story and you're a good animator and you're good at personality, well, then there's a good chance you'll be a good director. And that specific natural talent. And that's not the system we have today. Now they want you to start at 16 years old as a director, which is crazy because you don't know how anything works. You know, you just have a, like some crappy character design or something that's not functional that you can't turn around. Uh, you can be the most talented 16-year-old in the world. That's great. I'm sure when I was 16, I thought I could direct. Hmm. I didn't start directing for real until I was about 28 on The New Adventures of Mighty Mouse. But by that time, I had had a job in every department in animation. Hmm. I had worked in layout, I would worked in storyboards, I had done design, I had written stories. So I was ready, I was prepared for it. In the old days, because they started so young, Bob Clampett, Chuck Jones both started at 16 or 17 years old. They were both directors by the time they were 23, but they'd had seven years of experience and they were all, they were really good animators by that time. And Bob was really good at story as well as animation. So he was a natural to start as a director at 23. But if he hadn't actually worked in the system for the last seven years, mm. at 16, he wasn't ready to be a director. Mm. But that's the system we have now. So, you know, the, the one, drawback to crowdfunding is now everyone in this dog is going to think they have the next Snow White in their head. And they yeah. don't get on there and they'll, they'll want a million dollars to make the, you know, the cartoon or something and then they'll get the million dollars maybe and not really know what to do. Yeah. So that, you know, but that's all right. It's all, this is all trial and error. I think it'll find its way. It is a danger, like you say, because you see people who have success. They are usually people who have a reputation or a good you know, body of work people are going to be more likely to you know, fund the work you do or the work someone like Bill Plimpton does if they're familiar with you know, a whole bunch of short films and, and uh, movie stuff and, and what have you. It's still relatively, I don't know, early days for it as a concept. I think it's probably going to... It's gonna... the networks. It's the fault of the system, mm. the, the Hollywood system, the network system, because it's actually partly my fault. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, when we did Ren and Snippy and when Classy Jupiter did Rats and these were the first cartoons in 50 years that were creator-driven. Mm -hmm. you know, the creators were actually writing the stories and directing the cartoons. Previous to that, television cartoons 
had this weird factory assembly line system where nobody was overseeing a particular cartoon from beginning to end. You didn't have a director. There were no directors in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it was just an assembly line. The storyboard guys did their work at the storyboard department, which is in one building. Writers are somewhere else, and the writers don't draw, which is a huge handicap. They would write a script, and you can't write a cartoon with a script. It's ridiculous. So that was the system before Ranch Dibby came out. You know? hmm. Actually, before Mighty Mouse, the Bakshi's Mighty Mouse was the beginning of bringing back the, the old unit system, the director system where one person would oversee the cartoon from the beginning idea, from the story idea, all the way through to the, you know, the finished soundtrack. Yeah. And uh, when Mighty Mouse came out in 1987, it was a complete revolution, different than everything else in Saturday morning cartoons. And it had real rough edges and things yeah. because it was the first time that a bunch of cartoonists had a chance to retry this old system, right? So we didn't really know what we were doing, but we were eager and, excited and, and we did have experience in the other departments we just hadn't put them all together yet because no one would give you a chance in the old system so Red City was so successful and Rugrats was really successful that the creator driven model all of a sudden became trendy so then the network started thinking instead of getting experienced people like Gabor Chubo or me who had worked in animation for a few years and knew how it worked they started thinking, well, you got to get the next young person who hasn't been spoiled by the business. So then they started skipping the experience part and started just hiring people out of school with an idea. Yeah. And so that creator-driven thing has kind of degenerated over the years to like really primitive, amateurish-looking stuff on TV. I mean, just the odd hit, you know, like SpongeBob is huge. Yeah. But that's like SpongeBob was done by a lot of, even though. I think Steven Hillenberg was, but he had a lot of guys from, say, Ren and Stimpy and Rugrats and other shows, Vincent Waller and Aaron Springer and all these, you know, super talented people. He made another huge hit that really was creator driven. Yeah. It's kind of a bad, we've got to break back out of this. I'm constantly training people, you know, right out of college and stuff like that. And as they get in, I'm kind of known as being a talent scout. I've discovered a lot of, a lot of talent and trained them and let them evolve and grow in the way that they used to do in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, once that happens, all of this, you know, these people are very in demand. Then they end up working for some 16-year-old kid who's the director. <laughs> yeah. hate that. People who are really good are stuck taking orders from somebody who doesn't know anything about how the system works, whether you have talent or not. Talent is enough. You need skill and experience. Are you able to um, put into words what what screams out at, at you as like talent when someone sort of comes into your sights? Yeah, if you can draw really well. Uh -huh. Another bizarre thing: if you go to the Nickelodeon website, probably the other networks too, and you want to get a job, they ask for your resume. Mm -hmm. so who gives a crap about a resume in a cartoon studio? You look at their portfolio. And you don't have some executive look at it. Executives are blind. You need an, you know, an experienced artist who is in production working on a cartoon who can tell if not only if the person has artistic skill and talent, but if they fit your style. You know, there are a lot of different styles. Yeah. Not everybody can do every style. In fact, you get a lot of people looking for jobs coming in saying, I can do every style. As soon as somebody says, I can do every style, you know they can't do any style. <laughs> uh -huh. Usually people who are really talented are pretty humble. Hmm. And they, they're looking to learn new stuff all the time. So I look for good cartoon drawings in their portfolios. Right. 
And are the components of that, are they more sort of intuitive or do they come, do you think, from like an education and draftsmanship or anatomy? Or is it just something that people can be just born with? Uh, unfortunately, there are no animation schools that I know of that teach the fundamentals of what will make you a really good animator. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've hired lots of people out of CalArts and, and, and Sheridan College, and you kind of have to retrain them. Mm. Basically, when you go to one of these colleges, you end up having the college style, whatever that college is. You sort of have this overall group style, and they can't break out of it. In fact, the whole animated feature business is basically the CalArts. Um, there's some brilliant animators to have come out from CalArts. But that style is very, very sort of focused, doesn't really evolve or expand. They get better, more and more skilled with practice, but it, it's a very sort of uh, contained style. It's not easily influenced by outside, by other artists. It's all, they're all influenced by each other. Yeah. So I kind of have to show them, stop using these formulas you see in modern cartoons and try to think more, try to get your pencil more to be able to put down your personality. Hmm. And then you should be able to put yourself into other characters' personalities too. See, a lot of animators don't draw their own personalities, even if they're really good. They draw what they think animation is supposed to be. And right. I, uh -huh. I'm, I'm totally opposed to that. You know, I'm influenced by a lot of animators with different styles, but I'm also influenced by cartoonists, still cartoonists, comic strips, comic books. I'm also influenced by life, by talking to humans. And, and, and humans, every human is a completely unique individual and they have their own weird gestures and they have their own expressions, their own ways of moving. And I'm constantly absorbing all that and trying to fit it into the cartoons. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one of the things about Ren and Stimpy that everyone reacted to is um, that they seemed real. And they seemed real because they weren't moving and acting like stock cartoon characters. They seemed like individuals. And they were constantly coming up with new expressions and poses and things no. that weren't already designed in a, in, a, in a model sheet pack or in, a, in an animated feature or something. Yeah. Do you use model sheets in a different way or at all? Is it, is it more of a kind of thing of, of, are there any kind of limits to what a character could do, say? No, it's got to look and feel like the character. Uh -huh. But, but I, have a lot, I allow a lot more leeway than the other studios do. Uh -huh. the, the, way, the way I work is very similar to the way the old studios worked. They would start with the design. You know, they'd have a turnaround of the character and the designer might do a few poses of the character, Donald Duck, whatever. But then, once they start making the cartoons, the animators start inventing new expressions and new poses that are better than the original model sheet. So then they cut those out and they make a new model sheet based out of the actual functional poses that told the story. So you, you'll see the, all the old Disney model sheets. You can see the evolution of Donald Duck. He changed completely from cartoon to cartoon. Yeah. And they kept updating the model sheets with the poses from the cartoons. So to me, anybody who's working on your cartoon is going to contribute to the evolution of the character, whether you're drawing the storyboards, whether you're doing the layouts, or the animation. All those people, they're going to make the characters richer by adding new expressions, new poses. You can't like wildly just distort the character so it doesn't even look like that character anymore. You should make George Licker, for example, act like Bugs Bunny. Is. They're two different personalities, two different characters. So you have to know the character, and you get that from experience. Yeah. From working with the director. The director kind of focuses you if you're going off track 
you know, like they have been around Snippy sometimes. I'd have a really funny storyboard artist doing great gags, great drawings. But there was one time, uh, it was a cartoon uh, called In the Army. And there was a scene where the sergeant makes Ren and Snippy uh, do KP. Right? So they're in there peeling potatoes and stuff. And the way it was drawn originally was Snippy turns to Ren and he starts chewing him out. Like, look, you got us in trouble here. And here we are peeling potatoes. And as a generic gag, it was funny. But it just didn't match the personalities. You know? So I had to explain, well, look, Snippy's never going to chew out Ren. Uh, it's, it'd be the other way around. Ren would yeah. blame Snippy, even though it's Ren's fault. So, you know, stuff like that, that's what a director's for. It's just to keep it on track. But a director, you don't also don't want to completely confine your animators and your story artists and stuff. You want them to get their personality into the stuff. I don't want them to just follow some some action or some expressions. I see the same expressions, the same poses, same character designs over and over and over again. They always move the same. It's like, I'm tired. Yeah. Put yourself into the cartoon. Make the characters a little richer. Make make unique characters, mm. not just the same old thing over and over again. Once this film is completed, do you have a distribution agenda? Would it go online immediately, or DVD, or would you do like a festival tour thing with it? You know, everybody's asking me that, and I'm not even sure if you need a distribution deal. Basically, when you make it and you send it to the the people who helped you make it, it's going to be online. There's nothing you can do. About right. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could hope that it's not going to end up on YouTube. But I mean, I've already got. You know, all my old George Licker cartoons from the from those first Flash cartoons. Mm-hmm. They're all up on YouTube. Somebody keeps putting them up. Yeah. So there's any way to stop that. But maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe now it doesn't matter because if, if you're getting your stuff funded by the audience, then you stay in business. Yeah. Now, and you can make profits if the characters become popular by selling merchandise, the toys. I mean, Ren and Stimpy made all its money in merchandise. Something like a billion dollars in, in three years just on merchandise alone. Oh, it's, uh, I don't think they paid their money back on the production itself right. because they were self-funding it. So was that, uh, was that common practice back in the day for TV animation? Well, like Disney's shorts were lost leaders. Mickey Mouse cartoons didn't make money. Silver mm-hmm. Symphonies didn't make money. Disney used those all as um, experiments and to keep the audience entertained. Uh, where he made his money in merchandise. He was one of the pioneers of of making the money in the merchandise. Like people loved the characters so much that everybody wanted a Mickey Mouse toy, hmm. Mickey Mouse doll, you know, Mickey Mouse books, Mickey Mouse comics. Yeah. And that's another thing that's been forgotten. There are cartoons like SpongeBob, obviously. That's character-driven. That cartoon is character-driven. And because it's character-driven, it's hugely successful in merchandise. Hmm. I mean, you know, you can't go anywhere without seeing SpongeBob toys, SpongeBob yeah. purses, SpongeBob underpants, because you like the character. Yeah. I remember when they um, when they made those live action Flintstone films. Oh yes, <laughs> just god awful. <laughs> and then they released toys that Christmas of John Goodman, you know, <laughs> and it it bombed, and they couldn't figure out why don't kids like a, a man in a dress, a realistic Batman in a dress? Uh-huh. It's crazy. In the sixties, there were millions of Flintstone toys. I mean, I've got tons of them. It was huge. Because the characters looked like cartoon characters. The cartoon characters. The Simpsons sold a ton of merchandise. Well, they look, you know, they're they're fun to have as toys. They look like characters. From looking at the behind the scenes footage, it seems that your um, approach is still largely traditional with that sort of pencils on light box layouts and 
then down the line digital processors come in. Will the film in and of itself largely be digitally made or is would that just be more for like cleanup? Uh, all the drawings were done in pencil on paper. Uh-huh. This one, it's probably going to be the last cartoon that I do like that right. because I, I, I now draw it directly on the, on the Cintiq. Uh-huh. But it's still traditionally drawn. In other words, it's drawings. It's not flash movement where you just move a cutout across the screen. Yeah. There are a lot of drawings in there. They're all hand drawn. So it's traditional in that sense. We paint, you know, obviously we color it, mm-hmm. color the characters on the computer. And no, nobody can do cells anymore. It's just, it's too expensive. And yeah. I mean, I love, everybody loves cells. I love cells. Like, you know, I've got closets filled with cells. In fact, some of the rewards we have are cells from the Bjork video, from, uh, from some of the commercials I've done from Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. Got tons of cells and, and, and I love painted backgrounds, real painted backgrounds. And I might do some of those in this cartoon if we, uh, you know, if we get the budget we need. Then we'll hire some of the Ren Stimpy background painters maybe awesome. to do some of those traditional beautiful backgrounds. Excellent. So is this the way that, is it more or less the same approach that you used sort of way back in the day when you first started doing the webtoons with Flash? Were you using tablets before with digital or were you scanning in hand-drawn characters? No, we had a really elaborate system when we were first doing the Flash cartoons. Uh-huh. Drew everything in pencil. Not only did we draw it in pencil, we inked it. Uh-huh. After, after we drew it, we had trace it with you know India ink and a brush. But the problem at the time was, once you digitized it, once you turned it into vector art, mm. it would destroy the lines. Right. It would change them all, make them all look weird. So we had to add a step called optimization, mm. where I had a whole army of people who would take the screwed up vector lines and move those little points and balls around. Uh-huh. You know, we had, we put it over the yeah. pencil drawing or over the ink drawing. We have to scan of the ink drawing. Then we put the vector layer on top of it. And we have to move them all, every point oh, by hand to make it look like the uh, like the original. The original that was yeah. expensive and time consuming, irritating. Yeah. But I don't have that problem anymore. I can just draw in Tungo. Hmm. I mean, I draw the brush is so good in Tungo that when I do a line. It's like a finished ink, ink line. It eliminates all the stages in between the pencil line and the, uh, and the inking. It's a very sort of intuitive, like, picks up on the angle and the pressure and stuff, so you can get a really... You have to do a little bit of monkeying around with mm-hmm. the edges and stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's a lot... Not only is it faster, it looks better. Yeah. It looks better. Excellent. It always seems like you have a lot of like plate spinning and, and other things on the go. Is this film your sort of main focus as far as getting the word out, or is there anything else you'd like to? to well, I'm, I'm dying to do more toys, and I'm thinking oh. maybe Kickstarter is a way to, to do that too. I'm starting to see that the uh, the art of uh, crowdfunding is kind of the art of the rewards, not just the product that you want to make. Hmm. So next time around, I want to put some of the uh, money into creating custom toys and, and rewards yeah really cool funny stuff that uh, you know you couldn't get in the stores yeah you know, dealing with stores franchises is the same thing as dealing with networks right just have a million preconceived rules about what sells and what doesn't and they really have no concept whatsoever they're all really straight laced guys in suits and stuff that don't know what people like mm-hmm. so uh, again I'm hoping that uh, crowdfunding and the internet direct access with, with uh, the audience. You can make things that people like and you can find out right away if they want you to make them. 
Yeah. Do and they, and they pay for it. it. Just sounds like a great system to me. Cool. Cool. With John Kreese for Lucy on his latest project, Cans Without Labels. We talked for a good long while, and part two of our chat will feature on next month's podcast, so be sure to check that out. For more information on Cans Without Labels, you can check them out on Kickstarter. There's a link on the Squiggly podcast page. Uh, feast your eyes on all the goodies you can get. The project is accepting donations until August 17th. Some of the incentives are selling out already, so my advice is to check it out quickly. Thanks to everyone who was involved in this episode. Ant Blades from Bird Box Studios for uh, giving us the time for an interview. Robert Morgan, of course, director of Bobby Yeah. Check him out at robertmorganfilms.com and facebook.com forward slash Bobby Yeah Film. And we'd also like to thank John T. Picking from Weeble Stuff, celebrating 10 years. Thanks for your time. And special thanks to John Kay. You can find the links to his Cans Without Labels project and a whole bunch of other stuff we've been chatting about today up on the Squiggly podcast page. This podcast featured music by Wesley Allard and was presented by Steve Henderson at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson on Twitter. Co-presented and produced by myself at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter. BenMitchellBlog.blogspot.com Also, if you like indie graphic novels... Uh, please check out mine at throatbook.com. You can read a big chunk of it for free. Lastly, if you're listening in Spain, as our audience stats inform us, some of you are, my film The Naughty List is being broadcast on August 8th at quarter past noon. That's on Canal Plus Extra. So I've run out of stuff to plug. I guess it means it's time to leave you in peace. Bye-bye. You have to cut all my chuckles out. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to edit more in yeah. to make me seem more <laughs> yeah. endearing. Yeah, like Scooby Doo. <laughs> <laughs> Canned laughter. <laughs>